this evening, just a couple of things. Let me uh, just talk to you a bit about the uh, potential ballot propositions. I had the opportunity to speak with uh, our um, veterans, uh, leaders, and nonprofits, and um, what they would like to do is uh, to delay uh, placing the veteran memorial on the ballot, <clears throat> not in uh, May, but to do it in November. And uh, they've, they've uh, tasked me with putting together a, uh, an advisory group that will work. We have a subcommittee already, but um, one that would work with them as they uh, talk with Matt Young and his crew on design and the, um, the dollar amount. And I told them, I think we'll be good with that. Are you all all right with that? Yeah. All right. So good deal. So I said all that to say this. Uh, and, and speaking with Matt last week, I just asked him, you know, that he doesn't necessarily have to go over that since we're going to be talking about it anyway in the months to come. So it is not, not going to be on our priority list. All righty. All right. Happy day. Moving right along then. Joe, it's in your hands, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So that's one proposition. There's two more. Oh, yeah, but I didn't. In regard to the Miracle Field, he'll talk to us about that today. But yeah, well, I just talked with um, Tim Milligan about uh, the Veteran Memorial. He and I met, and that was that was it. So I didn't touch the other. So, all right. We all have right. several items uh, to talk asking. about during the work session, and one of those is the remaining ballot propositions. So, yeah. so we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. I'm going to ask Matt if you don't mind if you and Jason, you and or Jason, can talk a little bit about committee for the future land use plan. Yeah, sure. So Jason can come up. Um, but essentially what we would like to do um, is put together a similar committee like we did for the Parks Master Plan uh, and that, that process and program and work with you all to select a, a subcommittee uh, that would work specifically on the future land use plan and act as an ad hoc advisory uh, type committee uh, to the PNZ and Council. Um, we had tossed around some initial ideas of including some, some board chairs, um, certainly community leaders, stakeholders, and um, so of the sort. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll just kind of turn it over to Jason for any additional thoughts, but would really just kind of like your feedback on who all you would like to see to make sure we don't miss anybody as we're pulling together that steering committee. Sounds good. Yes, absolutely. To what Mr. Jones is saying, making sure that we have a citizens advisory committee, uh, committee rather that is very reflective of the community to make sure we're getting those various perspectives on future land use planning efforts and making sure that it's as robust as the efforts were to rezone downtown. So the consultant Freeze and Nichols, upon us receiving direction and guidance from you as the city council, we can get with them to help them to start to formulate those committees. All right, any input from anyone regarding what you heard? Go ahead, Tim. Um, when we did the parks and recreation, of course, we had some people from the parks board. And so I, I would just say uh, somebody from <clears throat> probably PNZ and a couple of council members for sure, like we had there. I, I thought that we had a good mixture of citizens, council, board members, so I'd like to encourage us to go in that direction as well. I think that's what we're thinking. Go ahead, Sarah. Larry? Size of the 
of what size of a group? Not too big. Yeah, we would like to keep it manageable. I think when you get to a certain point, it just becomes <coughs> difficult to control, uh, especially the flow of, of information and stay on target. So I would think no more than 15 is kind of what we had in mind. That's what we got. Yeah. Okay. But, but also make sure that you have, you know, kind of a cross section. So some folks that are in the industrial sector, some folks that are in commercial. Uh, residential developers. <clears throat> One thing that I know uh, you guys have worked a lot on is the relationship and the, uh, you know the communication of the council's vision with the boards and commissions. So something to consider is maybe the board chairs from at least the, the three that you meet with a couple times a year. Maybe someone from the school board. Uh, just, just thoughts. It, it's really up to you. <coughs> to do what you guys want I like but what we've seen and what we've heard in recommendations in the past is getting some of those major stakeholders so there isn't one uh, at least not intentionally there isn't one voice that's that's missed in that <clears throat> uh, I appreciate I'm sorry man you get when when do you want us to uh, kind of help you to get names and things of that nature yes no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> yes, sure day. Uh, so we can start the, the ball rolling. I do want to, it's worth saying that this these council, whoever y'all want to, to serve on this committee, won't be the only interaction council has. We'll have a lot of checkpoints built in along the way uh, to keep everybody in the loop. So this won't be a kind of a um, siloed approach to this. I just wanted to make sure y'all know that. I think the first time you'll, you'll meet with them as a group, uh, with Friesen Nichols, our consultant will actually be at our workshop uh, in February. Um, but if we could, we'd like to have the, the committee. Uh, we have a date tentatively marked in uh, for just after that, if I'm not mistaken. So having that pulled together uh, with next couple of weeks to check calendars and everything like that would be, would be helpful. Casey, go ahead. So as part of this, we've all been on tours. Some of our PMG members have actually been on tours, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about future communities, it's really hard for somebody that hasn't had that education or background or training or experience or seen on the ground things to be able to weigh in in a way that would be meaningful. Mm -hmm. How how do we plan on like I don't want like we we all appoint or however the process goes, we get fifteen ish people in there from a diverse background of people and then they just are immediately starting giving feedback. How does that process look like so that they understand the challenges we're faced with, what problems we're trying to solve, and how the development patterns and land use actually address that before they start <coughs> making recommendations? I think you hit something on the head here, which is you, you almost have to show people what you're talking about because as we've learned it's impossible to describe a 30-foot wide lot Right. Without looking at a 30-foot wide lot and saying, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't mean what I might have had in my head, right? So <clears throat> I think there are several things that would be of incredible value. One is that Urban 3 study that we've all learned. So right. there's an understanding going into it of <coughs> uh, land value and sustainability, fiscal stewardship. I think Troy walking through, uh, you know, where we sit financially and what we bring in every year, I think. Uh, public works going through our capital improvement plan and the needs of the city when it comes to infrastructure. I think all of those are good precursors and a good foundation to have 
before you start making land use decisions. Uh, I also think some of those tours, to your point, would be would be really valuable, you know, to see if not Norton Commons, then hometown in North Richland Hills. Uh, <coughs> you know, I think there are a number of places that we can take folks. I think we can take them to uh, some of the Admiral Legacy stuff that you guys have gone and seen so they understand what a corporate... If you drive around here, you don't see corporate campus. Now, many of the folks that serve on this board may know exactly what a corporate campus is. They will probably work on, on one in another city. <coughs> but I think taking them and showing some of those things that are within council's vision, uh, I think will help a lot. But we can do that. I think we ought to plan for that. Otherwise, if you don't get, if we don't educate, we get uninformed opinions and decisions. <coughs> I think you made this point, Mr. Brock, when we were talking about the youth council, is we want to make sure that we're educating people before they're trying to make decisions. So, so Joe, you know, as, as I think about, and maybe, and we think about, what that selection process would look like. I mean, if, if each of us, you know, chose two people, I mean, you got 14 folks there. So I, I don't know if that would... 12. If, if that would be... Oh, well. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You're correct. So, so, so if, if we did that, but then but we definitely would do well to have uh, involvement from the ISD. I, I think that is important. You know, Casey, remember, you, you were still working with that group on uh, on things like that um so yeah right 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 so joe what, what would you what would you recommend uh, to us in i think you to could select? start with a baseline mayor where each of you pick two representatives from the community okay uh we also take my my recommendation would be the chairs potentially from uh the planning and zoning mpfdc medc okay uh because as as some of these uh either incentives or <coughs> developments go before each of these boards, they will have had a chance to, to kind of see what council's vision is for that. I think that's important. Uh, a couple members or a member of the school board, maybe. Sure. Uh, so I, I think even if you did that, you're 16, 17 people, that's still manageable. Yeah, we had about not, 21 or so, actually. But I hear you. Yeah, it's, it's not outside <laughs> the... Whatever you all can... Can work with yeah, and I appreciate that, Joe. So let, let's do this. Uh, council, we need to, uh, this is something I think we want to work on post-haste uh, for these gentlemen because you all need names. Uh, it's Monday. So uh, is is uh, next Monday or Tuesday good enough? You all good with that? Can you get a couple of names to them by next Monday? Okay. Happy day. All right. So that will be two apiece for us, uh, again, with the recommendation of um, just tasking the school board to, um, and, I, and I'll ask the president, we can ask the president, to um, choose a couple from her group, if not herself. And then uh, we are agreeing, I think, together on uh, also having the board heads to be a part of that as well. Who are the three yeah. board heads? And who, who is the MPFDC? That's Scott <coughs> Bowman. Scott Bowman. Right? Right. And Lloyd Ashley. And all right. How do we keep from uh, colliding with each other? I go out and, and, and look for somebody. You want to talk to Ben Massey right now. And we got the duplication. Yes, sir. How do we choose in the same folks? I guess you all would just have to tell us that we're choosing. Well, Susanna, y'all, Susanna's real good about, you know, carrying that fix. 
You will undoubtedly get your get your two in first, Larry, and then you don't worry about it. Yeah. It's like Amway. I got my two. We'll give them to Susanna, Larry, and she'll let us know we have duplications. You will undoubtedly get questions about how long will this take, what sort of time commitment, when we do that. I think as a staff, we can meet and probably put the framework of that together pretty soon, and we can reach out to all of these people uh, that you have in mind for that and explain what that will be. Uh, we'll obviously send that to you as well. Joe, we, we have that, so oh, we'll send it to council, uh, if not tonight, tomorrow. That's great. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you all good on that? Bless you, bless you. Back there. All right. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Mayor, I think Raymond is going to come up and talk to us. Uh, a little bit about the design alternatives for West, West Broad Street at Retta. And we've talked about this several times as part of our capital improvement plan. Uh, it's in there. I know council has expressed an interest in being a little more involved in uh, not necessarily the design of the street, but the purpose behind the design for the street. What, what is it that we want to create? What is the type of community? What's the policy decision behind that? So I want to Take a moment and kind of go through that and see see if council has any input. I think Raymond will make a couple of recommendations, maybe, and we'll go from there. Afternoon, Mayor, Council. Afternoon, sir. So, like Joe said, uh, this is a 2022 uh, roadway capital improvement project, West Broad. This is a portion of it, but the project was approved last year, and that's a project that we started to kick off the design. So what we wanted to do is talk about this particular uh, intersection. So uh, with us, I have, I'm going to present, but we have uh, Bart and David with us. And then we also have three members from Dunaway. We have Josh Wright and Sarah Guy and Don Chesney in the back. So as we get into a discussion, we can certainly, everybody can participate and help answer council's questions. So as I said, that was, this is part of the capital project, uh, but this is specifically about the intersection at Renner Road. So when we started discussing the scope with Dunaway about the design, they had a few different alternatives to for intersection treatment, and those are things that you need to really make a decision on preliminarily before you actually enter a design contract to, uh, to, to get that fee down and the scope. So after we've looked at that, we put this together because they're, uh, after reviewing their report, we feel like that this is something that necessitates really council's input, as Joe said, before we move forward. So they prepared a report on these intersection alternatives and when they started this, we did a we did a uh, a, a uh, low cost initial contract with them to basically look at these alternatives. So to kick that off, they collected volumes at the intersection and used those to for the existing traffic volumes, and then forecasted for the next uh, several years to, to do that analysis. And then they looked at these different alternatives and did an evaluation. So although they looked at a few alternatives, the two that were basically feasible at the end of the day were a signalized intersection and then a 
version of a multi-lane roundabout. So what you see here, hopefully you can see this uh, for the most part, this is the signalized intersection. Um, so we're, just to orient you, north is to the left, so broad is uh, straight up and down. Uh, that's Redder Road uh, to, the, to the left and the right, so that's the existing asphalt section to the north, and to the right is the section that was reasonably, recently constructed. So ultimately, this intersection will be uh, four lanes, two in each direction on both West Broad and Retta Road. Uh, this will also include uh, intersection with Lillian Road, as you see there on the west end of the bottom of your screen. Any of these alternatives provide for a left turn for westbound Broad onto Lillian and, and uh, and a westbound from Lillian. So each of these legs of the intersection basically have two through lanes as well as a dedicated left and a dedicated right. So basically four lanes there in each direction. So even if you can't see it, that, that's what's configured there and transitions back to the existing. So the next exhibit here we have is what we call a multi-lane roundabout. So it's basically a, a, a roundabout that takes all the directions and facilitates them through with, with two lanes uh, continuous through that circle. And so like I said, it provides for the access to, to Lillian, and we'll get into the, to the details of this, but that's the, uh, and we'll have a, another exhibit of that. So basically what we looked at, or they did, and we discussed and landed on basically four primary criteria to evaluate those alternatives. Safety, then the how they function with those traffic volumes, and then all of the costs associated with those. And then lastly, uh, the aesthetics and, and what are possibilities of <coughs> options. So first of all, concerning the safety of those options, uh, in general, what you might guess, a roundabout uh, in general is considered safer. Uh, there with the signalized intersection, basically what those, what those diagrams represent is that you have more conflict points. The, the left side there is the conflict points with vehicles and the right side is what represents what pedestrians are going to um, be challenged with, and there's much fewer points with a roundabout at these points where, where they cross. And then we can see the, the vehicle incident points, there's, there's much fewer. Uh, another thing about the roundabouts in general, you do have lower speeds. The vehicles are slowed down as they go through there. You typically don't come to a complete stop, uh, whereas the uh, signalized intersection are definitely a higher speed option. And so next, the function um, for these. So the chart I have on the left, I'll just point out a couple of uh, a couple of uh, points about that. But basically, we uh, wanted to be clear. So the multi-lane roundabout, we had different versions, but that was <coughs> necessary to carry those lanes through. We do want to be clear. So what these what these represent is the uh, this is the, the the first two columns are the signalized signal. I mean the signalized intersection, and then the second is the roundabout. 
So basically what this represents is the bright green is a level of service A. I'm sure you're all uh, familiar with the level of service indicates your, uh, uh, your delay. And so A is the best and F is the worst. So green represents A down to the red of F. And so in almost <coughs> all of these in the existing condition, these are, these are 2025 volumes, these are 2035 volumes, and these are 2040 or what's ultimate build-out volumes. We're not positive exactly sure of the year that we'll get to full build-out, but that is what that represents. And so the, the roundabout essentially in 25 and 35 functions in general <coughs> better than the signalized intersection. Uh, and, and even in those peak hours, I wanted to be clear, this is representing a peak hour delay, so only in that morning and afternoon peak. It operates at least at a level of B or better all the other times, both, both options. So in this last uh, diagram here, what that represents, the 2040, it, this does have a, a lower level of service. The roundabout does have a level of service F for these... Uh, two approaches, northbound and eastbound, compared to the signal. But like I said, that, that is only during those peak hours. All of the other, all of the other times, it does operate uh, at a B or better. Both options do. Raymond, is that assuming no, uh, no alternatives? No more roads being built? nearby is that no they, they just assuming no these volumes are based off of our ultimate thoroughfare plan what would be <coughs> what would be constructed ultimately yeah um and vehicles per day in that area for it to have an s are y'all looking at that that's going to be like tripled or i mean what did you map that off of how many vehicles per day? That is the peak hour volumes. Sure. And so, so I, David may, or one of you guys may be able to speak to the, to the daily volumes. I don't have those. Yeah. Well, uh, I think back in 2019, the, the, the daily volumes along that section were just under, I think just over 10,000 vehicles. The analysis that we're looking at for 2035 and 2040 goes up to 25 and 30,000 vehicles per day. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Go ahead. <laughs> I just want to make sure I'm understanding that bottom right one. I think that's what I really focus on for making decisions at. It's 2040 a.m. Northbound and eastbound. That's going to be people coming out of the residential areas going to work. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, by 2040, we have more people working here nearby. Maybe they're not heading out that way. They're going out of carriage yeah. or going south <coughs> into areas where we know office <coughs> jobs could be. Um, but then it also said, you know, the PM time during that performs way better on those than, than the signalized does. And then <coughs> the westbound and eastbound and southbound sides in the morning perform way better than the signalized. Yeah. And then so when you kind of compare them out, like, it's not a substantial, like, yes, we see red, but then start considering sure. that's 18 years from now, 17 years from now, God, 17 years from now. You know, we've got plans for what the city looks like that could be substantially different in 2040 than the volume counts that we're thinking 
people going to work now, I, now. And, and I think you're 100 correct I, I want to you know just in in looking at the plans I thank you guys because we need to slow that traffic <coughs> down considerably you know um, even as they get on farther west down yeah. we're, 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 we need to be going slow exactly <laughs> we, we really need to do that I've seen cars actually flipped because <clears throat> you all know the churches in that area and uh, we've had cars actually flip on onto our property you know they, they just drive too fast and those senior adults out there and um, it's a, a scary place uh, for a lot of them to walk and now people are uh, are really loving that sidewalk, aren't they, Julie? Mm -hmm. Because it's it's a real nice walk from one side, town from we're actually from east to west and west to east. It's like a good good two mile jump. Folks love it, the hills and all of that. I think again, just just slowing that traffic down considerably it looks great. I like the roundabout. I do. Uh, it's much better uh, than, than the signal line. Uh, I, I actually think that it'll perform better. Because and you're showing us this anyway. I think it'll perform better <coughs> because it keeps traffic from just stopping, but it, it helps to keep it moving. And um, yeah, there, there's going to be a lot of growth, continued growth in areas. Y'all did a great job. I had no idea you're working on roundabout, and I, I love yeah, you when you put it up there. Thanks for asking. Yeah, okay. good job. But so just to cover the the cost so we have both construction and maintenance cost so the costs are overall very similar the signalized intersection you're looking at a little over 2.5 million where the roundabout it's around 2.7 something so for the overall cost of the project you're you're pretty close this like it says up there that doesn't include a right-of-way uh, for the roundabout and we'll cover that um, the uh, aesthetics you know the sky's the limit on what you can do with that uh, so those costs do only incorporate just general landscape and hardscape to make it look nice but you can certainly do more with that but those would certainly be the added cost and then the, the maintenance cost uh, given there that's really hard to nail down but given that there are operational costs with the signal and and timing and changes that have to take place over time there's also significant costs with the landscape and the, and the markings on a roundabout so it's possible depending on how you configure it the roundabout could actually have less or, or they might ultimately be fairly similar and then last I touched on the aesthetics I have some examples there um, about what can be done but to your point mayor though the these kinds of elements I mean the roundabout has a traffic calming effect or slowing down anyway but the more you add those visual elements to it it actually enhances that effect because it certainly you know certainly does uh, pull some attention from the drivers so given that this is the the uh, West end of town, Broad Street, it is the entry, so this is very important. So that a roundabout, like you said, it does give the option for a gateway entry. That can include all of those items, signage, the architectural design of it, uh, different paving materials, plantings, lighting, and uh, public art. And then also just the aesthetics of that, the smoother curves and the transitions, that, that's a, it's a nicer looking alternative. And the signalized intersection, while you can do some of those things, you just can't certainly make it look as good or use all of them. 
So that, that bottom left picture, that is a photo from and a roundabout that Dunaway actually did the design for in Fort Worth at McPherson Boulevard and Summer Creek Drive. It's just east of the Chisholm Trail Parkway down south. Uh, you can certainly see, it may be hard to see in the picture, but it, it does have a lot of green landscaping there and some elements going on. And then that next picture over is from uh, Colleyville. These both have uh, art pieces. I don't know, I can't zoom in, but um, those are basically art pieces from Colleyville. And then that, that bottom right is a structure in South Lake that they have. And so to sum up, that was our conclusion as well. Uh, we do recommend, and we went over those because we certainly do have those cautions to point out, but we had done away and we agree, do recommend that strong consideration for the roundabout, uh, those positives that safer, it does have those better aesthetics. Like I said, having that gateway opportunity at West Broad is extremely important given that location. And then it does function better in all those times, uh, like Mr. Lewis said, except for those peak hours. And we just consider for what you get for that cost spent, it certainly brings what we consider to be the best value. Um, so to touch on basically the couple of negatives that we see that are possible, um, that level of service from an F to an E, like you pointed out, there may be many things that can change. It's really tough to see that. and do want to point out that we do believe that was a fairly aggressive growth rate. So getting to those volumes may take anywhere between 2040 and 2050. We don't know. So it may not be just 17 years. We, we just don't know. Uh, the other thing that we do want to consider is that given input we've had over the years, and we know that that's a new thing in, in general, we do want to be aware of the public perception on the drivers and to make sure that that safety element that doesn't it, that's actually a real thing so we certainly would recommend you know public education and making sure that <clears throat> drivers because the the having a a multi-lane roundabout at that's a definitely a you, you need to know um using that and even though you can you can do a lot with signage you, you definitely need that public education or we we believe that would be an important element and, and Dunaway has lots of familiarity with that. So that was one thing they recommended. So with that, like I said, we certainly would welcome your input and look for a recommendation to move forward with you know, contracting for design. All right, anybody else wanna lean in? I like the All right, we love it. So our recommendation is to keep pressing, move forward, go for it. Thank you a lot. Good job. Thank you. Very good job. Okay, I'm going to move on to ballot propositions. <clears throat> Jason, are you coming up first? Come on up. So I'll talk a little bit, just to remind you about the type A, type B that we brought before you with Julie Partain and Rob Collins with Bracewell. Uh, we talked about what does that ballot language need to look like? How do we make sure there's uh, the most flexibility so that 
whether we're using it for bond funds for potential stadium projects or other related infrastructure um, associated with that type of development, uh, that we have the most flexibility and we're legally able to do that. So the attorneys, uh, we actually talked to them this morning. They did have a call with the Public Finance Division of the Office of the Attorney General to determine what the specific language needed to be, uh, what it could or couldn't have. Um, a couple things came out of that call. Number one is they have another call this Thursday uh, to, to verify some final things. Uh, but the, the language, as we're proposing, on the, the two different ballot propositions. One is a general, let's give our 4A powers, 4B powers uh, for these types of projects. And that authorizes the purchase for land, buildings, equipment, facilities, expenditures, targeted infrastructure, and improvements found by the board of directors to promote new or expanded development. That is language that other cities have recently used on elections for the same thing. Uh, City of Snyder actually just recently did this. And so the question was asked to the attorneys, if we were to approve this, could we sell bonds if, if the voters were to approve that first ballot? And that's the one that they said, they, they don't know the answer to that. Um, the reason is, is there's gotta be specific uh, uses and project costs and everything associated with that. And so that's, that's the ballot language that we're finalizing, but what we want to present to you was, you know, and discuss, is if we're using this with projected bond funds, if we're doing this in hopes that we're gonna go sell bonds, or the ability to sell bonds in the future, which, which one do we need? We're, we're saying we probably need both. We probably need two propositions. One that gives us the, the general ability to utilize 4A funds for 4B purposes, <coughs> And then the second one specifically related to the multi-sport venue. And this is broad enough that we could actually use the funds outside of a stadium and anything related to it, such as restaurants, retail. It's very broad, but it's specific to you know, a, a multi-sport venue. So that venue needs to be there. So that we know the attorneys are confident we can get bond funding, we can make that work. The first proposition is likely not, the way it's written is likely not something that's bondable in their opinions. And I don't know if Vanessa or Brad, if you guys, y'all were on the call, if you want to comment further, but that is something that if we have both of these on the election and they both were to be approved, then you're covered, you know, in, in terms of that. Now, if you wanted to use bond funds for another project somewhere else in town, unrelated to a sports venue, we'd, we'd be limited. We wouldn't be able to do that. So those are kind of the, the highlights of where we are um, as it, after Thursday, we'll have number one finalized. And then on your meeting on the 13th is when you will actually present this and call for the, the election. We'll have a public <coughs> hearing that's gonna be required. No matter what goes on the ballot, the public hearing will have to outline more specifics. And so during that public hearing presentation, we'll actually need to provide a little more uh, descriptive list of what those projects might entail uh, for ballot proposition number one and give cost associated with that. Uh, so we're working through kind of what that would look like. Um, 
we have a pretty good idea what that is. And we know we've got <clears throat> roughly $9 million a year in, in revenue, so we can determine what those are. So We have a good idea on the project because it turns out fall in the cash flow yep. that we worked on. So we're, we're pretty confident that we can work something up to have ready by the 13th. And then by getting, um, by putting some of those details in there, then are you just, I guess, limiting you a little bit more than we, if we, you just had to put them to say we, this? We think there are things in there that are listed that we can actually, what they want us to do is take out more. So we'll still write it to be as flexible as possible, but things we know we won't use that are within that, that particular statute we'll actually remove out of there. And that's really kind of what they're looking at. They don't... They want you to be flexible, but they, they want you to actually put some thought into the language. Yeah. And so we're, we'll, we'll work, continue to work with Bracewell um, and Bradley and, and, our, and our group and bring something forward. But we felt confident, you know, pretty comfortable after this conversation that there shouldn't be any issues with the two props. So Mr. Tenor has a couple things. Something I was just trying to figure out, well, if this does not pass, do we have other funding resources available for the multi-sports venue um, or is it, are we counting on this pass in order to build it? No. <clears throat> I mean, if you... At what point do we announce whether we have a sporting team? I think we're, we're, very to, we're very close to that. We would point. announce that before the election. And, and, and that's the question. I think as far as the public hearing that's required for either one of these propositions, we'll have to give the general public an idea of what project we're anticipating. Not necessarily full details, but the project and any cost implications associated with that project. Now, those don't have to be particularly in the actual language of the ballot itself, of the proposition. Um, but during the public hearing, we do have to give the public just an example of what that project may be. I think we have to put it for voters, but my, I'm thinking through voter mindset in May, asking this and any other propositions, is it worth putting other propositions or just saying we've got these two? If, if I'm going to the ballot box, have done no research, and I see these two things, I'm not thinking sales tax dollars. I'm thinking property tax dollars. I'm not thinking this is money that I'm already spending every time I go out to a restaurant. And having that combined with other propositions, I would be concerned that it would yeah, hurt it, it other propositions. Yeah, let me say Go ahead, Tom. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, I would love for it to say, you know, promote newer expanded business development to create additional sales tax. I think you got to let the voters know that what we're trying to do is use this money to create additional sales tax, either buy a stadium or other all the stuff that will go around. Yeah, and, and I think this is to what do other is fun saying. things like Grand Prairie. We need to, yeah, <laughs> we need we need to we, we need to, if, if possible make it in regard to the language just simplify it because it, it's legalese right now. I, I think I think that's what I'm hearing. I don't I think folks we can say, get around that. Unfortunately, I don't think we can get around the legal yeah. requirements. Yeah. I know I, I because they they say they it's always put out there in a way that 
backwards, backwards to the regular yeah, no, person no, reading yeah. it. Yeah. But to your point, I, I don't know that we wouldn't be able to add language at the end that would cause the public to also know that this, in turn, would right. generate additional funds for us to be able to do these kind of projects. Can you, that's what Larry, Larry, not what you're saying? Anything to, I'm like, Casey, it's, they're going to initially look and say, there goes my property taxes.
ballot propositions right. last year. Right. I think you're going to have to create a, create a subcommittee that of members of the community. Yeah. The city cannot spend <clears throat> public funds on advocating for this. Right. Can't. Uh, we won't be able as staff members to go and speak publicly about this. Not to advocate for it. Can explain it. No. Can, right. can explain it and we have to be very cautious in how we do that. To do public education. Can, Jason, can you challenge our MEDC board to go out Absolutely, absolutely. We did that at our last meeting last week as we, we presented this and they were all 100% on board and um, promised they, to be They need to go to the homeowners association meeting. I mean, we do too, but we need as many as we can get. Yeah, that, that would be good in-house advertising like we did uh, yeah. last year on the other propositions where they come and talk to it as well. All right. So... I, I think you've heard from us. Our suggestions, recommendations, keep us legal and uh, make it as clear as possible if we can. We're hearing you loud and clear. Yes, sir. All right. Okay. Okay, short and sweet, from your direction at the last meeting, we reviewed the cost estimates from Miracle Field that were prepared in 2021 for last year's bond uh, proposition. So just to update you, not uh, significant changes, same amenities, same proposal. The original uh, 2022 bond proposition included <coughs> 5 million. The updated cost is 5.3. That does include 1% for public art, knowing that that cultural arts master plan is not completed, but it's one of those discussion points. So that does include uh, about 45,000. That's 1% of the construction budget gets us to 5.3 million. So that would be, if you choose to put that in front of voters, that would be the total project cost for construction and design for the Miracle Field Project at McLennan Park East. Troy? Troy? So we worked with, uh, went back to Nick um, with Hilltop, and you know we, we borrowed more money than we anticipated, um, but having run the new numbers, we have the ability to fold this project in with no tax increase given that everything stays the same in Austin, not knowing what's going to happen in Austin, um, but should things stay the same, um, we should be able to fold this in or will be able to fold this in without a tax rate increase, given what we've talked about in our, in our strategic plan with the $12.5 million in streets. You know, we borrowed $17.5 million this year, but another seven or another $12.5 million next year for streets, as we talked about. Um, we'll be able to absorb this project with no tax rate increase. Would this impede the progress of any other project that no, we sir. may have? No, sir. We have other capacity as well okay. over the next five years for other projects as well. All right, colleagues, Julie, you sure? It still sure? has right. to be on a ballot proposition. Ma'am. Does it still have to be a ballot proposition? Yes. Yes, it has to be a ballot proposition because it was denied by the voters. So it would have to go back, but we can still, um, we can just say there's no tax rate increase associated with this project. I think one of my concerns is, I think Casey brought it up while ago, is hitting the voters with too many propositions at one time. And then it's almost like if they have, if they don't know all of the things that are going on, it's just like no, 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 just to make sure they're covered. Right. You know what I mean? I, 
I just think we need to think about that as we're discussing. Okay. All right. Mr. Lewis and then Mr. Brock. So if we pay cash, does it have to go back to the voters? So, <clears throat> no, probably not, because <clears throat> you're funding it a different way. What you took before the voters was this project and others with a tax a new tax pledge to it, right? You're funding it a different way. So potentially, no, it doesn't have to go back to the voters. You're asking, me, you're asking me my opinion? <laughs> I would go back yeah. to the voters. Yeah. What, what my concern is, is, you know, we have a, we have a three-year requirement from May of 22, get to May of 25. Because we've got, I think the MEDC one is more important today to put on a ballot in May. I can see this one either being on a future ballot, November, you know, more voters turn out, or just wait until the three years and just pay for it. If you, if you go out, this may, and for some reason, it just doesn't pass for another three years. Like you just keep kicking it further down, and I, I would be concerned. I think the MEDC one's important. You put that one up, and if for some reason, this just becomes a casualty of it. Now we're another three years. I'd rather leave this one off in May. Focus on MEDC. If we decide we need to try, if we have to issue debt for it, we try in November election for this, or we have. We have tons of park fees coming from this quadrant. This park needs reinvestment anyway. We could just make it a parks project with park fees and pay cash for it at the three-year time in 2025. Okay. One suggestion, Tom. So, so clear if we move this to November. There's no additional charge to put this on the November ballot since we don't have anything running. Cost escalations between now and then, maybe. That's... I think you can do any of any of those. It's it's totally up to the council. Let me recognize the mayor, and then I'll speak to the veterans. Go ahead, Larry. I'm sorry, Barry. Thank you, Barry. I can't support it based on the resounding uh, comments that I've had. Probably a couple dozen people over the last few weeks. Uh, that they that were speaking about both it and the uh, veterans memorial, and they, every one of them, I believe to a, to a person, likes the idea, but they tell me that you're crazy for trying to do it again a year after it's been it was put down. Being up for election politically, it doesn't make sense for me to support. certainly could see holding off a little bit. I, I would hate for us to lose the MEDC uh, uh, initiative that we're trying to go through. And I do know that people really complained about the lengthy process was last year. Okay. All right, Tim. I would agree with Councilman Lewis about waiting, um, giving it the three years I want the park and I want it bad. Uh, but I think with everything that we've got going with the sales tax, uh, if we get some things uh, passed on that, with everything that we have, I think we could end up with the park <clears throat> fees and everything paying cash 
It wouldn't come out of no one's pocket on down the road. And so that is kind of where this city is at. That's where the people are at. They don't want anything else coming out of their pockets. Okay. And so um, I'm, I'm with Councilman Lewis. Okay. Matt, is it is it possible to um, do it like that? Some of what you're, you're, you're hearing on uh, today, I didn't think it was possible myself. Well, I, I don't think park fees. Good, good I mean, to generate 5.3 million park fees, even with the development in this quadrant, it, I mean, the southeast quadrant has had, we've used very little of that, and it's generated about three and a half in, its, in 20 years. So I don't think it's going to generate that. You would probably most likely be looking at reprioritizing MPFDC right. and issuing debt or and or cash out of sure. out of corporation and maybe pushing out some of those projects. Um, if you still wanted to do it at this site, the other the other likely thing within a five year period is I mean a Miracle Field could easily be incorporated into the redevelopment of the Skinner Sports Complex, completely different site and look and feel to it. Um, but but it would be much reduced cost at that point because you're talking about one field in addition to all the other fields So that would be a possibility too. So if we don't move forward now We would have options to look at how how to incorporate it, you know over the next several years You know just personally, I, I think that we have a need for it, you know, but um, I'm with my colleagues. I, I can hear their uh, rationale for uh, pushing it back I just, you know, I, I do know that um, a lot of uh, residents from this area utilize the Miracle Field in Arlington. And um, I fully understand that you got to get the votes out, though. You know, people get out and they vote for it, it gets done. But, um, you know, again, we're, we're in here, we're in this together. So, <laughs> all right. There it is. I'll just live with it. I'll get over it. Go all ahead. Right. I agree, with, I agree with Mayor. This is a need. We, don't, we can't lose yeah. track of that. There's a lot that needs to be done in part field that you're going to have to do if there's a miracle field there. Like the Veterans Memorial is a want. Right. So uh, I just want to make sure that, you know, as our Type B sales tax dollars increase, hopefully there's some additional funding there where you can start addressing some of these needs in this park. That's the most complicated. Yeah, that's the most complicated thing. Years to address the needs. Or twenty. Twenty. At yeah, some point, you're going to have to address them. <laughs> yeah. And my, I guess my point is, if you address some of them over the next three years, maybe that's this bond see. package won't be five point three. Maybe it'll be a lot less. Yeah, that, that that'll be one of the most difficult things for us. We, when the bond proposition did not pass, uh, the corporation included. $250,000 to replace the, the playground is 28 years old. The problem is leaving the baseball field where it is, replacing the playground is in a completely different location of where it would go here. Yeah. So that's funded and we're ready to go. This resurfaced so we tap the brakes a little bit. Sure. If we don't move forward with a bond election, we really need to replace that playground. Sure. But it won't go in, a, in this area and it won't be nearly as big. It, it can't go in this area without taking out a baseball field just to put the playground. So. It puts us in a, in a unique situation. We either just take the playground out and have no playground in the park or just live with it and realize if this project does happen in the future, the playground, we've invested a quarter of a million dollars in a playground that we have to tear down because yeah. it won't be anywhere near what yeah. this playground was envisioned to be. Yeah. 
Mr. So Lewis, that's, that's and that wouldn't be good stewardship. We understand. Uh, Go ahead, Mr. Lewis. My, my family is a benefactor of Miracle League in Arlington. We use it often. Um, I, I don't doubt the need or, or any of that. My, my bigger concern is when you go to the voters, you're asking to issue debt for it. That it's not should we build it or should we not. The question last May was should we issue five million dollars of debt and raise your taxes to do it? And voters said no, we don't do that. And I think it was fifty-two forty-eight on this one. I think it was right. pretty split. Um, because of the need, because of all of those things, while we don't have MPFDC funds or park development fees, I think between all of the funding sources. Maybe general fund has some subsidy in it. We've sold a ton of land. We got actions moving. There, there are. I think there are opportunities that we time it, because even if even if we went to voters in May, by the time it's designed, construction, we're at, we're getting close to that 25 point anyway. We're at the three year time period. I just I would hate to see important propositions fail. I would hate more to see this one fail again because it gets lumped in with a bunch of other things that are important. And then we just keep kicking it further, and we're. I just, uh, I'm gun shy. I guess after last year's bond election, in asking for it, when I know that we would have the funding capacity, most likely to do it without needing to go issue debt. Sure. To do it, and we can make those timings work. Okay. All right. Appreciate it, Ms. Short. <laughs> to end up doing Miracle Field at Skinner, what does that do for the playground issue here? I mean, if we made that decision today, then we would immediately go into design and replace the playground. We'd have a new playground this fall. Well, it's about a six-month equipment, so at least by this time next year, we'd have a new playground in the kind of area of the park that it currently exists. Are there, what, what would be negative about us just assuming we're going to do this at Skinner instead of here? What are the negatives? It's just time uh, because we remember we kind of need to do phase one of Southwest Community Park. Uh, first, get new soccer fields, and then the, the redevelopment of the existing soccer fields that Skinner then would build new baseball, so it would happen with that. So it's about five years completion of both of those pieces. I would be okay moving forward under that assumption that we do it that way. Your thoughts on that, Matt? Matt? Um, and just be, I mean, you know. Yeah, the only difference is it's a completely different experience. That's the only, the, the biggest thing about it. I mean, you're putting it in, in a baseball park with lots of other fields. So obviously, um, a lot of the, a lot of the kids and the participants have special needs, including, you know, sensitivity to noise. And, and the, the, the one nice, or one of the nice things about McLennan is, is it's kind of secluded. It's, it's all by itself. And, yeah. um, we have some other, other things that I think you, you may hear about at your retreat that. We were going to propose in addition to kind of make it even more special. Um, so, so the babies lose. Yeah. Okay. All right. But again, <clears throat> we're together here. I'll suck it up. I'll get over it. All right. Next. That's it. Such is life. All right. All right. So, Mayor, what we're taking from this is we're going to move forward with the the ballot language for the yes. type A. Yes, and type B. So there will be two propositions. We will prepare yes. that language. We heard you loud and clear in what the direction we'd like to move with that language, uh, provided that the law allows. Yes. And at your next meeting, we'll bring forward uh, language for you to take action on. All right. And we're on hold with this, but moving forward with the playground. Correct? 
Correct. Okay. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. What we got next, buddy? Uh, Mayor, we, we've got staff here. Yes, consent agenda. The second time we have posted this on the agenda to talk about consent agenda items early. Uh, I want to tell you again, the staff really appreciates this. It gives them a chance. If they have something on <laughs> consent, but nothing else on the agenda, they're not here till 8 o'clock tonight <clears throat> when we can get them out of here. Sounds good. That. All right, not a problem. So, council, in regard to the consent agenda, questions, which ones would you like to um, get clarification on or discuss? <laughs> Jeffrey answered fine. Jeff, all right. I, I answered that one too. Okay. Absolutely. All right, Jeff, Jeff. I think it was the water that he gave us. All right. Mind control. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's what it was. <laughs> All right. Anything else? I would say what? All right. Anything else, y'all? Y'all good? Yeah. All right. Now, are you really good? Okay. When I get to this item, you're really good. Okay. Oh, Mayor, let me pull this one. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. And folks home. So yeah, I know. Okay. All right. All right. I think we're good. We're good. Next item on the agenda, Mayor, is the joint work session with MPFDC. They won't be here till five, so we can go to we can recess into executive exactly what we want to do. All right, we'll recess into executive session pursuant to section. 551.071, Texas Government Code, the council reserves the right to convene an executive session from time to time as deemed necessary during this meeting for any posted agenda item to receive advice from its attorney as permitted by law to discuss the following. A, pending or contemplated litigation or to seek the advice of the city attorney pursuant to section 551.071. Seek advice of city attorney regarding pending litigation cause number 348-2701-55-14. Seek advice of the city attorney regarding pending litigation cause number 320-CV-2601-NBK. Cause number 348 uh, Seek the uh, city attorney's advice uh, regarding uh, code enforcement uh, cases. Seek advice of city attorney regarding charter and bylaw language. Seek advice of city attorney regarding legal issues pertaining to economic development projects listed in section 3.D of the agenda. B, discussion regarding possible purchase, exchange, lease, or value of real property pursuant to section 551.072, uh, land acquisition for a future development. A personnel matters pursuant to section 551.074. D, deliberation regarding commercial or financial information received from or the offer of a financial or other incentive made to a business prospect seeking to locate, stay, or expand in or near the territory of the city and with which the city is conducting economic development negotiations pursuant to section 551.087. Economic development project 21-19, 22-14, 22-18. The council will now recess into executive session at 4:10 p.m. Ladies and gentlemen, there it is. All right.
Council. Thanks for letting us be here tonight. I would like to call the uh, the meeting for the Mansfield Parks Devel Development Corporation uh, to order at 525. Our first order of business is citizens' comments. Citizens wishing to address the board on non-public hearing agenda items. And items not on the agenda may do so at this time. Sarah, do we have any cards? No. no. Citizen comments. We'll move to number three and begin our joint work session with the Mansfield Park Facilities Development Corporation and City Council. Thank you, sir. Good to see everybody. Thank you all for um, sharing your time with us on this day. It is, uh, I think, always good and important for us uh, to meet together just to uh, hear from you and we get an opportunity to dialogue on the great things that are in front of us. And uh, also, I think that it helps us with, the, uh, with our constituents so that we can communicate to them a unified message. So appreciate you. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. And I'll turn it over to uh, staff, Mr. Young. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the council. Uh, as you know, one of your commitments is to try to have some regular joint meetings with, with boards and commissions. And so uh, following up from the four board meeting last October, this is the first round and we'll rotate through. So we're excited. I'm definitely excited about this topic to kind of kick off our financial sustainability project. We have a consultant, uh, Jamie Sabak, with 110% Inc. that is going to guide us through this project. So she's going to give you both the board and council an overview of the project and solicit a little, little input as we get going to make sure that we're, we're on the right track. Uh, this is, you know, a little bit, uh, three of our council members served on a feasibility study for the multi-generational center. And if you remember, uh, there was discussions in, in that process about cost recovery and financial sustainability. Uh, and policies and strategies that we don't currently have, or if, they, if we have them, are, they're pretty informal. This project is gonna help us define that. So I'm gonna, I know you have a lot on your agenda, so I'm gonna shut up and turn it over to Jamie and let her start the, the process and feel free to ask questions throughout, uh, but we will have a, a section at the end as well. And this was about 75 minutes. We shrunk it down to 60 and we'll try to get it done and shorter than that if we possibly can. We know you've got a, a full agenda tonight. I'll turn it over to Jamie. Thank you, Matt. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, appreciate your time tonight. My name is Jamie Sabak. I'm going to give you a very brief eulogy before I get started. I think it helps set the stage for this work. Um, I've been in the park and rec profession for over 30 years. I'll say community services for over 30 years. Uh, I'm from Chicago originally. Don't hold that against me. Um, I've served communities in Illinois, Indiana, and my last practitioner position was a superintendent with the city of Boulder, Colorado, park and rec system. Um, the last 13 years, I've been privileged to work alongside park and rec professionals, community services professionals across the United States as well as Canada. Um, and I also teach a little bit at Indiana University on this very topic in the School of Public Health. So um, I've got an interesting grounding in this particular work. Uh, we have been doing a lot of these projects over the last couple of years. Um, since July of 2020, we've actually worked with 109 different park and rec systems in the United States or community services departments in the United States that have been also included libraries and museums. So um, just like to set the stage with that, <coughs> we are very passionate about working alongside local government because all of us have actually worked in local government. Um, as Matt mentioned, I'm going to do my best to get us through all of this content um, swiftly without compromising anything that I'm hoping to share with you tonight. Um, and ensure that obviously you have the energy <coughs> to move forward with all of the other work that you have to do this evening. Um, 
very quickly, this is essentially going to be the agenda. I'm gonna share just a little bit about the why. Uh, we tend to go in a lot more detail with professional staff about the why, but uh, I'm sure all of you recognizing your representative community members can certainly understand why this topic is so important in local government. More importantly, I'm gonna share with you the what and the how. I wanna share with you the methodology that we'll be using as the framework for the work alongside uh, professional staff and then open the floor for any thoughts, comments, questions you might have, and then do a real quick, here's where we're headed next. So that is our agenda for tonight. And for some reason, this is not. There you go. All right, great. So um, I am gonna share a little bit of context. I think it's very helpful to understand uh, Maybe not necessarily why this is so important, but our history and uh, in particular where we have been and where we are today and really why that's so foundational to the importance of financial sustainability. Oh my goodness. So I tend to ask folks, um, you know, what is this? And I'll say, please don't say Boston Common because it's pretty obvious. But this was the first public land in the United States. We tend to think it's the National Park Service. We tend to think maybe Central Park. In actuality, it was Boston Commons. The reason I share this is because it was our birthplace. And it's also a place that is representative of a commons, a space that we all own, that we all have access to, at least the assumption and understanding is most people will have access to this space. What you don't see here is a yoga class. You don't see a rec center. You don't see a playground. The intention of our public parks is actually for people to be able to self-direct their own activity. So it'll be the quickest history lesson ever. But over time, over the last you know few hundred years, we evolved, we grew. Government started to take a more active role in public parks, recreation, libraries, community services type services. And what essentially has happened is we have community expectations now of government to provide these kinds of services. The challenge in our world in community services or public parks and recreation is we have become something for everyone all the time. And the reality is we have a difficult time sustaining that business model. So we have to make some interesting choices and decisions about where do we invest in order to have the greatest impact on our community. The reason I share this with you is this is, because, this is really the foundations for this work is where does the city of Mansfield, Texas, where does Austin, Texas, where does Brookline, Massachusetts, or Champaign, Illinois, put their taxpayer dollars in order to have the greatest impact on the community? And so what we're finding today is we have more providers in our communities than ever before. You happen to be in a densely populated part of the United States where there are a lot of public park and rec systems in this region. So where do we put our energy, where do we put our resources again in order to have the greatest impact on our community? And again, this becomes very foundational to this work. I like to think about it as this, it's balancing our social service hearts with business principles. That's really the, the intention of this work, is to ensure that in order to continue to provide the critical services our communities need moving forward, we're able to write the checks, right? We're, we're able to pay the bills. I will tell you there are systems that engage in this work that are desperate. Um, the city of Napa, California completely divested of their park and rec system back in April of 2020. It's been brought back online. We have other systems that have cut their budgets by 60%, 70%. I applaud, and I said this today in the staff meeting, I applaud Mansfield for doing this when you're in a pretty good <coughs> place, right? You're in a good condition. So you're ahead of the curve. The intention, of course, is to stay there in order to sustain the system and to continue to be fiscally healthy and well moving forward for your community and for your citizens. So we're trying to infuse a bit of business practice, business acumen, 
along with obviously sustaining, maintaining, and balancing the big social service hearts that your community services staff have. They're really in the game of providing service to community. So that said, I'd like to share with you the process that we're going, we're going to be using as the framework for the development of a strategy that makes sense for this organization. We have coined this, Parks and Reconomics, we actually have a, a registered trademark on this. How we think about this work is uh, the best utilization of finite resources. When I started in the field in 1989 as a sports program coordinator, we were using language like limited resource. And today now we're using language like finite resource. There's only so much to go around. How do we best use what we have? And that really, again, becomes a bit of an umbrella under which we develop these strategies. We start often with a couple of provocative questions, one of which is, are you smart about managing money? And obviously, I'm speaking in terms of managing taxpayer dollars. We are privileged in local government to spend other people's money. Every day, we're making decisions on the backs of our taxpayers. So we're a bit provocative again in saying, are you smart? in terms of how you're managing, spending, and investing in these taxpayer resources. Again, very much a pillar to this work. Alternatively, there are a couple very important terms that need to be understood, uh, one of which is cost recovery. I will tell you again, I've been around the block for a long time, and many professionals think cost recovery is a four-letter word. <coughs> it's, we're gonna raise fees, we're gonna price people out of the market. We only care about the bottom line. And to the contrary, really, it's just us understanding the costs associated with delivering our services and then being thoughtful and intentional and intelligent about what is our recovery rate going to be? What does it need to be as we move forward? So we simply want to understand philosophically where do we put our taxpayer resources in order, again, to have the greatest impact on the community and use them very thoughtfully and, and very intelligently. What we do need to know, though, however, in order to establish a cost recovery philosophy goals that make sense is what does it cost you to provide services? So part of our work is going to be diving into the data, understanding costs associated with service delivery, whether it's a park shelter rental, a swim lesson, um, a walk through a museum, whatever it may be, we're gonna be looking in a very granular way at the costs of doing business. Alternatively, the other side of the coin is subsidy. In its simplest of terms, certainly not to um, simplify it to the point where it doesn't make sense, but subsidies, taxpayer investment, right? So one side of the coin, subsidy, how are we investing, spending taxpayer dollars? Alternatively, what's our cost recovery goal? At the end of the day, 100% is what we're trying to accomplish. One of the things that I think we sometimes can forget in local government, and sometimes forget, is that every time we subsidize a service, we're providing a benefit of some kind to the individual or the group. And it's kind of an easy way to say, okay, we're providing a benefit. We, we, we need to be smart and responsible on how we are choosing to distribute, if you will, or gift those benefits. So I kind of tasked the staff today. I said, okay, cost recovery. Uh, we've got a 50% cost recovery for a service. Our subsidy is? <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for playing. <laughs> so if something costs us a dollar, we generate 50 cents, we are subsidizing it with taxpayer resources by 50% or 50 cents, right? So it's sometimes, again, can be a little bit more complicated than it needs to be, and we're trying to simplify it so that staff will really embrace it and understand the importance of it. So I'm just gonna take a few minutes and share with you the methodology we use. It's the methodology we've used with all of those systems I shared before. I will tell you it's the method methodology that I applied in Boulder, Colorado as an administrator when we took a million dollar hit right after the recession. 
So this has been applied in many, many ways in many types of organizations across the country. I will also tell you that this has been evaluated for effectiveness by Penn State University. So we're very proud of the fact that we're not only applying these kinds of methods, but we're actually testing to see how effective they are uh, in terms of implementation. So we refer to it as a three-legged stool. Of course, as park recreation community services folks, we need to add a bit of frivolity to something that can sometimes be intimidating. But very simply, we are creating legs to this process or a framework. The first is creating service categories. The second is beneficiary of service. And the third is cost of service. And I'll go through these rather quickly. So service categories are a very important pillar uh, to this work. They're foundational. Um, the staff, we've actually identified a service category development team. And Sarah has uh, very graciously stepped up to be the lead. Um, and this group represents all levels and layers of the system. So they're really bringing their expertise to the table to, rep to create categories for Mansfield's department. What are service categories? Very simply, it's where we bucket services based on like purpose. And allow me to walk you through this illustration. Hopefully it'll create a little clarity for you. We have services in this department. We have service areas in this department, and we're creating service categories. An intro to fitness class is a service, and I'm using three basic recreation type services to help illustrate what I mean here by service categories. So we have intro to fitness class, okay? The class itself is a service. It's an experience being delivered to your residents, your customers, your community members. The service area might be the seniors area, okay? So anybody over the age of, 55. <laughs> I, I, I was being facetious because I'm in that camp too and I don't like it. I'm sorry. So let's say, <laughs> let's say seniors over 65, 70, 80, you know, your age, age of choice. So our service is intro to fitness, our service area are our seniors. Let's say in a hypothetical circumstance, and this is very common across the United States today, our cost recovery goal on seniors is 25%. Why? I'm going to be very facetious here. Um, well, they've been paying taxes their whole lives. They expect their fees to be low, right? And so on. The story goes, they're on fixed income. So we just say 25%. Alternatively, let's say we've got a Learn to Swim program. It's one of our services. It's an experience we deliver to the community. This is the service. The service area that it lives within is aquatics. Very common, again, typical traditional in terms of organization of community services and or public park and rec departments. We'll say the cost recovery goal here is 40% because, well, it's always been that way. And alternatively, we've got a youth sports area and T-ball is one of the services we provide within youth sports. And our cost recovery goals there is 50% because, well, it sounds good, right, sweet spot. I'm being facetious, but this is truly how many systems have identified cost recovery goals. First of all, what we want to do is say, all right, well, we might have some social values <coughs> debates or special interests that drive these conversations. Hypothetically, maybe the president of our local Little League happens to be our mayor or maybe a board chair or somebody with influence in our community. They're saying, look, this is really important to our community. You sports are incredibly important to our community. We need to keep cost recovery here. <coughs> and so what we're trying to do, number one, is bucket services logically, and we also want to excuse any social values or special interests infusing themselves into this conversation because it becomes really irrelevant to the overall health and well-being of the system. So we're going to look at these services a little differently and we're going to look at them based upon, again, like purpose, meaning these very services, these three services you see on the screen, while serving a different interest and a different population, 
really are all introductory in nature, right? We're introducing someone to a skill for the first time. So we might, in our hypothetical, say these are beginner level activities, regardless of the age of the user, whether they're lifting weights, whether they're swimming, or whether they're in a t-ball program, okay? So we've got a category now based upon like purpose. Ultimately, what that means is these kinds of services are gonna have the same cost recovery expectation. Our second leg or pillar is what we refer to as beneficiary of service. We do not own this. This is not our intellectual property. Frankly, nobody owns beneficiary of service. This is the way economists have differentiated goods and services in the United States economy for decades. What we're simply doing is connecting the dots between the services you provide and who benefits and who has access to these services. To give you another example again of how this looks, Let's break down one of the services we had here from the previous slide and say, okay, let's look at our aquatic service area. And our hypothetical, we might say aquatics in this case is 75% cost recovery. But we say, well, wait a minute. We look at all the kinds of services within aquatics. A couple of them might include our intro to swim lesson, and it might include something like a master swim team. And if we think about the beneficiary and who has access, we say this may not make sense, right? It's hard to defend this because learn to swim anybody in the community may have access to. And that's an extreme generalization, but I'm gonna be 60 years old this year and I don't like water. I can go take a learn to swim class. And I would be in there with this little guy. That would be a little weird, but I could take a learn to swim class. I can't participate in this activity. I don't have the skill and ability in order to participate. Access greater, limited access by virtue of the fact this is more individualized, it's more specialized, it requires a particular ability or mastery of skill in order to participate. So we now say, okay, well, who's benefiting? Who has greater access? This service we might suggest in our community aligns more with the common good. It has a broader reach, more people can access it. Alternatively, more individualized, more specialized, more exclusive in nature. What we find also is these are likely going to be in two different categories. Even if they're in aquatics, this one is going to be beginner level, and this is likely gonna be more advanced or more competitive. Okay. And finally, as we connect the dots between creating service categories, which again, we've got a team that's hitting the ground running, they're gonna create the categories to represent the organization's service menu. Once that is done, we're going to be doing a ranking exercise with staff and hopefully with all of you as representative community members, will you begin to rank the categories of the organization from those that you believe align more with the common good, meaning they're essential must-haves in our community, far-reaching impact, universal value, and access for all, to those services that you think are more discretionary or they're nice to have. They're the services that are more specialized, they have more of a, or less impact, they're more exclusive, and there's access for some. And as you can imagine, the intention here is now we're beginning to see the beginnings or the development of our financial sustainability strategy because we can now begin to defend, justify, and rationalize more subsidy resource investment going to the services that align with the common good and maybe less resource, if any taxpayer investment going to these services, <coughs> potentially providing you an opportunity to generate excess revenues to reinvest back in the organization. Finally, the cost of service. And we like to refer to this as the backbone of the exercise. It's about to start in the next couple of weeks. Um, without getting too granular with you this evening, uh, please just know that we're collecting data and information to help inform 
us in terms of understanding what it costs to provide every service the organization provides to the residents and to the community. Um, I do use this often. I'm about to excuse it. Poor Matt's probably seen it more times than he can count. Um, I liken how the public sector has thought about cost recovery and cost of service to that of a teenage driver. Um, if you've been one, if you have one, if you used to have one, you can probably appreciate the fact that most of them think the only cost associated with driving a car is gas. And so forget about insurance, we forget about registration, we forget about new tires, we forget about ultimately replacing the car. The optimism here is the public sector is beginning to understand the importance of all costs associated with doing business and understanding true cost recovery. Because when we don't and we say we're at 80% and in actuality we're only accounting for some costs, we're misrepresenting our fiscal reality. So I want you as a taxpayer to know that we're at 27% cost recovery and not 60, or we're at 50% and not 80. And so what we're doing is simply telling a more accurate story by way of accounting for all costs, direct as well as indirect. So this is gonna be quite the exercise working with staff. We had a great meeting today with our counter, I won't say our counterpart, but our team member um, who's leading the cost of service work we actually partner with a tech company in Montreal who we advise the development of the cost of service tool. And again, we get very granular in assessing your cost of doing business. Ultimately, by way of understanding cost of doing business, building that beneficiary service model, we'll work with Matt, Sarah, the team to help them take the cost of doing business along with some guiding principles, looking at your budget projections, uh, looking at what you can anticipate in terms of revenues and setting and establishing credible, realistic and intelligent cost recovery goals for all of the service categories we offer. Uh, this is an example, I'm gonna share just three quick examples with you. This first one is for a special district in the Chicago metro area, they're rather small. This is a system that has acknowledged and recognized they can no longer rely on the general fund to the degree that they have. So you'll notice a bit of ambition with this one. You'll also notice their goals are not listed as cost recovery goals. This is how they're choosing to subsidize. And we know it means the same thing, but they felt this was a better uh, front-facing way to articulate, here's how we're spending your taxpayer resources. So open access, think about your parks, your open spaces. You don't have to, to teach me, instruct me. I can go walk in a park, I can walk my dog, I can sit on a park bench and read a book. Mm -hmm. That's what open access is. All the way to things like resale a bag of popcorn at the pro shop at the golf course, a t-shirt, um, a swim diaper. I said this this morning, I have trouble with swim diaper being a resale item, but nonetheless. So um, we have this, this progression of expectation relative to cost recovery. 100% subsidy, parks, open spaces, trails, all the way up to resale items where they're actually going to see excess revenues generated to reinvest back in the organization. Here's another example. I put a two Texas examples in here, something a little closer to home for all of you. Uh, Denton has chosen to call theirs, title theirs, brand theirs, a subsidy and resource allocation strategy. You can see their categories, similar yet a little different than the preceding organization. Their cost recovery goals are articulated or illustrated as cost recovery. Again, open access. I've been doing this a long time. Open access always ends up in the bottom left. Again, parks, trails, playgrounds. And they've got resale at the top right as well. 100% um, uh, subsidy, 0% cost recovery, all the way up to 0% subsidy, 100 to 150% cost.
cost recovery expectation. Again, they want to reinvest back in their organization, understanding that then the more they can reinvest back in their organization, the less they rely on the general fund, and it frees up general fund money for other departments in the org organization. Finally, I'm going to share two other examples, both from McKinney, Texas. Um, this is McKinney's strategy continuum. They simply called theirs cost recovery strategy. Um, open access, again, all the way up to resale. You see some consistencies with these three in particular. A little variation on their strategy or on their service categories, um, but some similarities as well. The reason I share McKinney's with you is not only is it another Texas organization, but they actually created two uh, strategy continuums. You'll notice one of their um, one of their categories is specialized business services. This is for their Apex Center and their golf course. And they've extracted specialized business services and they created a separate continuum just for that particular category. So it's up on the top right as 100% plus cost recovery expectation. And then they created, they kind of extracted all of the service categories that um, are, are offered if you were provided at the golf course in Apex. And then they built those into a continuum, the same progression based upon beneficiary of service but more ambitious goals because they function as enterprises. So nothing you see here is subsidized, and the expectation, again, is excess revenue to reinvest, to pay for debt service, right, depreciation, all those kinds of things in these enterprise uh, offerings that they have. So a slight variation with McKinney as opposed to the others. This is not one size fits all. We use the same methodology, the same framework, but you see that the outputs and the strategies vary depending on the community. So um, I'm going to close with this, just so you're aware of the deliverables offered uh, by this process or afforded the, the city by this process. We, of course, will create the categories along with representative definitions and examples. We use the categories, obviously, to inform the development of the strategy. There will be a, co a comprehensive cost of service analysis, which really excites Matt. He loves data. Um, an insights report, we have a really robust insights report that is delivered to every organization. Uh, it provides a lot of really fascinating and interesting information to help the organization tell stories about where they're investing and where they have opportunities for a variety of different things, which might include even partnerships, could include potentially divestment and then reinvestment. Um, a beneficiary service model, which I shared with you, we take the categories, we rank them based upon your perspective as well as those of the professional staff. Ultimately, the strategy, we are going to be working with the organization as well, depending on Matt's direction here, uh, to create some policies for the system. Uh, minimally, we imagine a financial sustainability strategy policy, or a financial sustainability strategy, uh, I'm sorry, financial sustainability policy, and potentially even something like social equity to ensure that you're actually investing in certain things like uh, uh, needs-based assistance or reduced rate programs. We've even written policies for systems where we've included tree canopy for underrepresented and other underserved populations where they don't have the tree canopy other parts of the community do. Could be 10 minute walk to a particular park or particular neighborhoods. Um, and then finally, we have a fee scenario, we call it a template, but essentially it's built into the tool. And once they have identified their goals, you can plug in the goals and actually see what the fees, prices, if you will, for certain services should be based upon the goals that have been set. So it's a pretty robust process, along with a robust <laughs> list of deliverables. So with that, I'm going to stop and 
zip it and see if you have any questions of me about the process, um, about anything I've shared with you this evening. And uh, certainly I'm going to get Matt back up here uh, as the director. Great. Uh, usually a system about this size, four to five months, um, sometimes stuff gets in the way, so they may be pulled in another direction. They've got a very ambitious agenda right now with accreditation and a few other things, so that could delay things a bit. But we like to get it done in about 16 to 20 weeks, principally because once we get the train moving, we want to get it done. We want to get it to the station and get out of their way um, and have them obviously freed up to do other things. But we kicked the project off today, and my hope is that in four to five months we'll be close to the finish line. We were trying to time this so that uh, any potential policies or changes in fee structures could be incorporated into the budget process this summer for both the board and council to consider. Uh, Matt, I know this was a goal of yours for a while, so thanks for getting it on, on an agenda moving forward. Uh, are we looking at public-private partnerships and how those play into all of this? If so, do we have thoughts as to what that looks like? Yeah, in fact, we, we talked a little bit this morning with Jamie about that. She, she So we'll need to educate her on, on all the various relationships and partnerships, the different levels of incentives. Obviously, we don't directly change some of their programs and all of our leases are based differently, but I think I think maybe that's why, because I didn't even know that last McKinney slide was put in there. That may have been why she put it in there, because that could be another alternative continuum that we present or, or evaluate for the public-private partners um, that we, you know, wherever there's wiggle room in there, that we could we could have different goals uh, that come out of the policy for each of our five public private partners. Yeah, okay. I know the question's been asked in the past. You know, when does the plane land? And comments have always been, plane doesn't land. You know, you've got to reinvest all that. I think getting getting a handle on what that looks like and how we invest there. Um, I know you use the word subsidy, which I thought was a great way to when we focus on these because I think it's the same thing when we build roads and streets and water and all the other things like we're subsidizing that that work and when you ask the average Mansfield resident would you rather extra lanes of road or more parks trails open space playgrounds and those type of things I think we all would say well I'd rather subsidize rather have parks and stuff rather than lanes of road that don't get used and so um, I, I think knowing what we're actually subsidizing in parks. You know, if we fast forward to build out, I'd much rather see us subsidizing in open space and trails and all of those type of things and finding ways to reduce the other side that the general fund picks up. And so identifying that now is great. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't express how excited I am about this. You know, visiting with Jamie and some of the other clients and, and I think it was Napa Valley, uh, when we visited Amanda and I visited with her a few months ago, I mean, they, they examined the, the hanging basket program in the historic downtown and sounds great and everything, but when you, you add up all the costs, when tough times come, do you really want to spend $200,000 a year on hanging basket you know, program or is that an area now that we know exactly what that service costs, do we scale back? It will give us the tools and the data to make those decisions as needed. So really, really, and again, you know, simple park maintenance tasks that you're free and open to the public, but is there a different way of doing business now that we have been kind of uh, apprised of what it truly costs for that service, so. That's good, yeah. <coughs> 
highlighting so many ideas and things that have been brought forth by our community with our 10-year master plan um, to be able to you have a, a, an upfront analysis of what it would cost um, and how we can help provide those services that a lot of residents are asking for. Having that information going in and making those decisions will really be critical for us. So I think that will be very helpful and I'm very excited. I know that uh, Matt's done a lot of work with um, depreciation and, and infrastructure and what we what, when everything needs to be replaced. And so having all that data all in one place will be very helpful for us to be able to provide the support for our community moving forward. Thank you. You mentioned we're ahead of the curve. What would be an example of in front of the curve, both realistically and in a fantasy land? Somebody say. <laughs> <laughs> the bleeding edge versus the cutting edge? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, in your field of expertise. Well, so you're talking about systems that are doing really well right, right now. Right, right. Well, as I understand it, you're in a pretty good financial position, so the intention is to stay there. Some that I can think of that are similar. Westport, Connecticut's one we've been a tool tabs here. They're not, they didn't have to do it. They did it because they felt it was the responsible thing to do. And a sense of that's where you go. Alternatively, there are systems that contact us and they're desperate. They've been hit really hard. Um, I mentioned one as a case study that really, it pains me to even mention it because when I was a young professional, they were the system in the United States everybody was emulating and now they're in crisis, and that's the city of Portland, Oregon. Park and Recreation Bureau there are in crisis. They have $500 million in maintenance backlog. They, they don't have enough money to sustain their operation. And it's because they didn't create something that was gonna help them sustain what they'd created. They were building, they were growing, it was all exciting, but the gravy train ultimately ends. And when you're building and growing, there's no better time to create a strategy that you're going to be able to use as you move forward. They just kept spending and spending and growing and building and they weren't thinking about how they were gonna pay off their debt and the deficit that they now have. Um, there's an interesting image that I use often in my teaching. Um, between 2013 and 2018, their expenditures outpaced the revenues by 38%. That's not sustainable. If that was our checkbook, we'd all go, mm, time out. Yeah. And when you're in government, you have to sometimes not take it as seriously. So there's, it's a spectrum. Right? Those that are doing okay and they want to stay that way, and those right now going, what are we going to do? Help. And then there's everything in between. Jamie's great presentation. I love, Thank you. love this. I feel like I'm drinking from the fire hose here, but um, this is, uh, I like to make decisions based off of information. This is clearly that data that leads to the information to make good decisions. The, uh, the continuum graphics that you had, uh, bottom left to upper right, uh, that was really nice. I like that. But is there any way to, in that sort of conversation, talk about the order of magnitude of how much dollars that is? Because we're talking about percentage. You know, open space is 0% or 100% subsidized, but op operations and maintenance of parks is considerably, considerably more than swim backers in resale. Yes. And so I didn't know if there was a way you guys have done that in the past. And then I'm also curious about an approach. Right now, we're looking backwards at everything. We're, we're looking at our entire inventory to what we have. And in the future, we would want to have this at the forefront of the discussion to talk about what, a, what a, uh, an asset or inventory would end up costing us long term. Is that the goal to get to have this discussion, the cost recovery discussion <coughs> at the beginning of planning? 
Yeah, absolutely. For, for those of you that were involved in the feasibility study for the multi-generational center, you remember one of the first questions on day one that BRS asked was, do you have a cost recovery goal? And we didn't. So we kind of went with 75% and played with it through the, the, the process. And that, that last example from McKinney that Jamie referenced, the Apex, that is a facility similar to what we described. And so pulling that out and having something like that established on the front end so that Hopefully we get back on track and we're able to make that facility happen. I know everyone in this room is hopeful for that, but having the strategy and policies in place will help guide us so we're not like we're feeling our way through the dark and, and hopefully some of these other decisions and analysis that we do will better inform us to maybe refine that a little bit. So yeah, for, especially for big facilities like that. And to address your first question, um, the tool I referenced earlier, once all the data is um, analyzed, we put it into this tool that the staff will learn how to use. And uh, it's going to be a little hard to explain, but a part of that, we have a <coughs> dashboard. And so every category, you'll see listed at the bottom of a, a, it's a bar graph, essentially. And you'll see your current performance, and you'll see your goal. And you're going to see the gap. And the gap isn't just in terms of percentages. It's going to tell you you're $1.6 million away from your goal. You're $212,057 $212, away from your goal. We get that granular. We're going to show you in terms of dollars and cents. And it's going to show you cost recovery, and it's going to show you the taxpayer investment you're making for every service within every category. So it will address those things for you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. If we're done, we'll go ahead and adjourn and continue on. So, what time we got? It's right at six oh three. We uh, we will adjourn the. Thank you all very much. Thank you. And we're going to recess into executive session, uh, pursuant to section five five one dot zero seven one Texas Government Code. Council reserves the right to uh, convene in executive sessions from time to time, as deemed necessary during this meeting. During this meeting. Or any posted agenda item to uh, receive advice uh, from its attorney as permitted by law to discuss the following pending or contemplated litigation or to seek the advice of the city attorney pursuant to section 551.071. Uh, seek advice of the city attorney regarding pending litigation. Cause number 348 270155 Cause number 320 CV 2601. NBK, cause number 348-3257-19-21, and also to seek the advice of our city attorney regarding active code enforcement cases, seek advice of the city attorney regarding charter and bylaw language, and to seek advice of the city attorney regarding legal issues pertaining to economic development projects listed in section 3D of the agenda. Uh, discussion regarding possible purchase, exchange, lease, or value of real property pursuant to Section 551.072, land acquisition for future developments. Personnel matters pursuant to Section 551.074, and uh, deliberation regarding commercial or financial information received from or the offer of a financial or other incentive made to a business prospect seeking to locate, stay, or expand in or near territory of the city and with which the city is conducting economic development negotiations pursuant to section 551.087. Project number 21-19, 22-14, 22-18.
uh, the council will now recess into executive session at 6.05 p.m. Thank you all very much. <laughs>
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to reconvene into our regular business session at 7.13 p.m. We'll have our invocation by Corey Smithy, pastor of the North Elevation Church, and we'll have our Pledge of Allegiance by Ms. Julie Short and our Texas Pledge by Mr. Larry Brosh. Let us all stand. <coughs> Pardon the allergies. Almighty God, we come before you tonight in the name of Jesus. We give you thanks and praise for all your mighty works. You are loving and good and gracious. We thank you for our city. We thank you for our elected officials, the businesses, the churches, the families, and the individuals that make up our amazing city. Father, grant to the mayor and the council that they would never neglect or abuse their authority, but that they would stand firm for truth and justice. Father, keep them safe from harm as they serve our community. Father God, I pray for the city council meeting tonight. God, give the council members wisdom and guidance as they deliberate on the items before them. May every decision be righteous in your sight for our benefit and for your glory. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you very much. We want to also welcome Leadership Mansfield, class number 13, uh, to uh, our meeting on tonight. So we appreciate them. All right, we'll move right into our citizens' comments. Citizens that are wishing to address the council on non-public hearing agenda items, and items that are not on the agenda may do so at this time due to the regulations of the Texas Open Meetings Act. Please do not expect a response from the council because we're not able to do so. This will be your only opportunity to speak unless you're speaking on a scheduled public hearing item. After the close of the citizen comments portion of the meeting, only comments related to public hearings will be heard. All comments are limited to five minutes. Now, in order to be recognized during the citizen comments or during a public hearing, applicants included, Please complete a blue or a yellow card located at the entrance of the chambers and present it to our assistant city secretary that is seated to my right, your left. And as a reminder, this will be your only opportunity to speak unless you're speaking on a scheduled public hearing item. Council may not respond due to regulations of the Texas Open Meetings Act. Ms. Marin, do we have any cards? <coughs> Thank you. All right, Mr. Johnny Williams, would you please approach the podium, please, sir? State your name, address, and we'll be ready to hear from you. Yes, my name is Johnny Williams. I reside at 1104 Pebble Beach Drive in Mansfield, Texas. And um, I appreciate an opportunity to speak before you tonight. It's really for the audience. I'm, I'm going to read this simply because of the time frame that we have. I'm a licensed real estate broker in the state of Texas specializing in commercial real estate. 
I review contracts presented by buyers on behalf of my clients in order to see if the intent of the document is addressing the business fundamentals that relate to the transaction of his and her understanding. The three basic elements in that review are the salient points of the offer, the value of the offer, and a concern of legal protection for my client. I do not give legal advice because I'm not licensed to do so. Therefore, I then recommend an attorney review and revise the document for my client's legal protection and understanding if needed. I read the 25-page agreement between Admiral Legacy and the MEDC in the city. Never have I seen an agreement so ambiguous, filled with contradictions, and words and numbers used to project realistic outcomes with no realistic commitments, other than buildings which will be built by Admiral Legacy and is guaranteed by the city and MEDC. The 25-page agreement with Admiral Legacy was presented in the previous council meeting on January 9th for your approval. I could elaborate on every paragraph and page of that agreement, time doesn't permit. So I'll focus on one issue. Quote from that agreement, whereas MEDC intends on leasing approximately 50% of the office building in phase 1A. Phase 1A shall mean that portion of the project consisting of an office building of at least five stories in height, containing a minimum of 130,000 square feet of gross rentable office space. Realistically, it provides an opportunity for the city and MEDC to occupy 130,000 square feet at their discretion. In my opinion, and others, it has the earmarkings of a new city hall. In the by-election of May 2022, Proposition B included a new city hall. It was not passed by the voters. It failed. The following day, on May the 7th, a council member made a statement in writing, a direct quote from that statement. I am glad voters had the opportunity to have input into the decisions of how we build our city. But this process has shown me exactly why our city has not held a bond election for 18 years and is unlikely to hold another one anytime in the near future. We have the funding capability, capacity, and authority to do each of these projects we put before voters without needing approval. We said we'd give you choices, and we did exactly that. The interpretation of that quote is very simple. We can and will do whatever we want in the future without your approval. The 25-page agreement is a prime example of that attitude and the power that comes with politics. Common sense does not prevail in the structure of that agreement, nor does transparency. I don't expect to change any of your thoughts uh, or opinions of me or the agreement that you have approved, only to go on record in hopes that someone else will take the time to question or challenge some of the decisions that are being made, which I believe are not in the best interest of the citizens 
from taxpayers of Mansfield. If asked by anyone in the audience or anyone that elects to watch this on City's video at a later time, I will provide a copy of this information on the 25-page agreement and challenge each of those individuals to read the contents of that agreement and evaluate it for themselves. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. All right, Dr. Benita Reed is coming on behalf of Leadership Mansfield. Please state your name and address, please. Uh, yes, um, our Honorable Mayor and um, City Council, I'm so happy to be here. I am not speaking on behalf of all of Leadership Mansfield. They were looking at me as if I were. <laughs> I apologize. But I did want to mention something. Take and it back. Yeah, he takes it back. I did want to mention something that I'm really, really excited about. On last week, I attended the MISD um, community conversation with our um, superintendent, Dr. Cantu, and a few board members. And I learned that there's a collaboration between the city of Mansfield and our MISD um, school, school board. So I'm excited to learn about that. I would like to ask, I know you cannot respond, um, what collaborations will develop from that. Since you can't answer what I'd like to really, really um, impress upon the city of Mansfield is to, as soon as you can say what is coming from this collaboration between MISD and the city of Mansfield, we parents would really like to know because we're excited for this collaboration as it will affect and make an impact on our students. Did I do okay? Okay. That's all I wanted to say. I'm excited about the collaboration and thank you so much because I know it's a long time coming and our students and parents will be excited about it. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. All right, are there any more cards? All right, we move now to item 11, council announcements. Ms. Short, Mr. Lewis, Mr. Tenora, Ms. Bounds, Mr. Bronx. Yes, sir. All right, none for me. All right, we move to item 12, staff comments. Uh, Mr. Smolinski, do we have comments today, sir? Yes, Mayor, have a, have a few. A uh, couple planned and <clears throat> one not. I know, Howard, if you wouldn't mind getting ready to come down here, but before you do, uh, Jason Moore, would you come down here for just a second? I want to make sure that before we send anybody on a goose chase, we answer a couple questions real quick. Could you, Jason, if you don't mind, if you would mention very briefly what the Admiral Legacy Project is and talk about <clears throat> what, what sort of businesses and industries intended to go there. And then I would also like you to speak to whether or not you've ever, in the entire time you've worked here, especially working on this project, ever heard that this is going to be a city hall of any sort. I, I just want you to answer that because you've been working on this project since its inception. Yes. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so this project, this developer that we've been working with, I worked with in the city of Louisville, and they have a business in one of the really more successful Class A developments in, in Louisville, Castle Hills, the realm. And so we wanted to recreate something like that. Uh, we don't have a Class A market in, in a Class A office. We have medical office, but not Class A. Um, without the market, it's really hard to get financing for a development like this, so what we wanted to do was partner with the developer on a project that we know, knew could be successful with um, a, a collaborative innovation space in mind. And so from day one on this project, uh, the developer has partnerships with uh, different universities, 
different collaborators. In fact, we have a meeting tomorrow with that innovation collaborative team. And the, the point is, is that, you know, the, the city would never intend to actually lease the space. I mean, we, it, it's a mechanism to get the financing in place. And worst case scenario, yes, we are on the hook for that lease. But the intent is to be able to go out and recruit the biotech businesses, life sciences, because of our, our healthcare industry and the university educational partnerships that we have. That's the intent. And so that's the intent is to, to go out and find the tenants from San Diego that are coming to Irving and North Dallas uh, and capture those headquarters and those uh, bio life and uh, life science tenants here in Mansfield. And this, right now, we talk to those in our office all the time and that doesn't, we don't have a place to put them. Uh, when they look, we've got very few offices um, at the size that these particular tenants are looking for, 30,000 square feet or larger. And so when they're not in a medical space, they're looking for class A office, they usually go elsewhere, or they, they do. And so this is our chance to uh, capture that market. Jason, while I know you're not able to disclose the names of any of those folks that you've been <clears throat> working with thus far because no deals have been, have been made yet, uh, is it safe to say that you're working with uh, <clears throat> major industries that could be future partners here with the city of Mansfield and existing business partners here in Mansfield with a tremendous uh, track record of success here in the city, uh, one of which is even James Sellers with Cellmark. He was the Chamber of Commerce's Edison Award winner last year for innovation, and he's been a major part of this project and the, the overall development in that corridor. Is that right? Correct. Thanks, yes. Jason. <clears throat> and then, Howard, <laughs> congratulations. You can follow that. No, you're, this isn't a question and answer period. No Go ahead, Howard. Uh, Mr. Smolinski, ladies and gentlemen of the council, uh, we are here tonight once again to um, update you all on the uh, previous year's uh, activities related to our stormwater program. And in order to do that, I've asked Julian Holmes, who's our stormwater program coordinator, to uh, put together the presentation that's going to be presented to you all tonight. Thank you. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, ladies and gentlemen of the council. My name is Julian Holmes, and I have been with the city since 2018. As Howard said, I'm the stormwater coordinator, and I assist him in managing the city's stormwater permit. The presentation I have for you tonight covers all of the activities that the city has engaged in over the previous fiscal year. Um, we were required to comply with the stormwater district permit. One of those requirements is for the committee to submit an annual report to the state, and which is due at the end of December. Historically, we have always followed up with a presentation to council after submitting that report. Before I talk about our specific activities, I will just briefly go over the history of the state's permit program. In the 70s, Congress signed the Clean Water Act and created the EPA, granting the organization the authority to develop a permitting system. Initially, the focus was on industrial activities into pipe discharges. In 1989, Congress then mandated the EPA create a permitting system for large cities um, with populations over 100,000. In 1999, Congress then mandated that the EPA create another permitting system for uh, cities with uh, populations in an uh, urbanized area. These areas are defined by the Census Bureau, and Mansfield is part of the DFW urban area. In 2003, the state then assumed the permitting authority over the stormwater programs from the EPA and released its first permit in 2007. The permits are updated and renewed every five years. 
So the data that I will be providing in this presentation is from the fourth reporting year of the permit ending in September um, with the fiscal year, and we are currently operating in the fifth year. As for the status of our individual stormwater management plan, it has passed technical review, and we have been authorized to post our public notice, which was published in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on January 6th. The period for public comment will be ending on February 5th. If a significant amount of interest is expressed by citizens, by the public, then the TCEQ may hold a public meeting. If any citizen would like to review the plan, it is available on our website and in the Public Works Office in City Hall. The fifth year that we are in will also be the last year of this plan and permit term. The TCEQ is currently developing the new permit for the next term beginning in 2024. The preliminary proposed changes include migrating from a two-step general permit under which cities have previously developed an individual stormwater management plan. We will be migrating to a comprehensive uh, permit program. Under this new permit, we will not be required to submit a public notice, nor be required to submit an individual stormwater management plan for review. Instead, we will be selecting best management practices for um, a pre-approved list for each minimum control measure. We will still be required to submit an annual report, which will be done electronically. The permit is divided into seven areas of concern, called MCMs, or sh which is short for minimum control measure. They are as follows, public education, outreach and involvement, illicit discharge, detection and elimination, construction site runoff control, post-construction stormwater management, pollution prevention and good housekeeping, industrial stormwa uh, stormwater sources, which doesn't apply to us, it only applies to cities with populations over 100,000. And number seven is authorized authorization for municipal construction activities. This last one's optional, but we use it so that we can have all of our capital improvement program um, authorized under the one permit as opposed to having to submit individual permits for each uh, project. Each MCM is then subdivided into best management practices or BMPs, and our plan has a total of 40 BMPs. The first measure is public education, outreach, and involvement. I'd like to point out that the Environmental Department shares this responsibility with the Water Utilities Department, and we have two positions with them that we share, public education specialist and the communications and marketing manager. In this particular year, we printed 16 articles or brochures, and we made 51 social media posts. In doing so, we met our goal for this BMP. These were for programs like Texas Smartscape, Do the Right Thing, and generally relating to water conservation. These programs help educate citizens about things that they can do that will have a positive impact on water quality, such as planting rain gardens or picking up pet waste. Creating content and messaging was not the only item under public education and outreach. We have several other programs that engage our citizens in actively removing or preventing materials from being uh, content from contaminating the environment. One of these events is Chunk Junk, during which citizens can bring in items that are too big to set out on the curb for public services to pick up. This event is held twice a year, and last year we collected almost 60 tons of material from 399 households. We also record addresses so that we can determine if there's an area that is being underserved that perhaps we need to target better with our messaging. We have an adopt-a-street We have an adopt -a -street program. Um, bear with me just a moment here. I think I got ahead of myself. We have an adopt-a-street program that is sponsored by Keep Mansfield Beautiful and volunteer groups uh, clean trash along a designated roadway. This last year, we had 303 volunteers participate. The volunteers spent a total of 533 hours cleaning up 50 different routes, uh, collecting a total of 1.3 tons of waste. 
Another program we have that is aimed at addressing litter is the Neighborhood Beautifications Project. These are coordinated by the city's co uh, volunteer coordinator, Julie Scheffler, who does a great job of recruiting organizations to participate in the program. This year, we had 12 cleanup events that involved 2,016 volunteers who picked up just over 123 tons of trash from various locations. You may or may not be aware that we have an environmental collection center just down the street, which is open on the second Saturday of every month from 10 to 3, and on the Thursday and Friday prior to that from uh, 3 to 7. Residents can bring in household chemicals, use paint, use motor oil, electronic waste, and they also have access to a reuse room. This year, we had 3,016 residents use this service and 75 residents from Cedar Hill. In an agreement with Cedar Hill, that we've opened the center up to them, but which further benefits both cities and brings in additional revenue to the city of Mansfield. Last year, this amount was $9,600. The Environmental Collection Center totally uh, collected, uh, disposed a total of 21 tons of waste and recycled 94 and a half tons of material. The next minimum control measure is illicit discharge detection and elimination, which deals with illegal dumping. Last year, we had 436 code enforcement cases. Code enforcement helps with the majority of these, and they include trash and debris, dumpster enclosure, swimming pool discharges, and illegal dumping. We do also use game, uh, game cameras, but last year that didn't yield any enforcement action. As mentioned earlier, we have two minimum control measures in our plan that address construction. Measure three deals with private, and measure seven deals with the city. The largest pollutant of concern from construction is sediment, which makes its way into creeks and streams, causes harm to wildlife, and affects our drinking water supply. Last year, a total of 432 inspections were conducted and documented, resulting in 26 enforcement actions. These consist primarily of a notice of violation which are occasionally escalated to a stop work order, in which case, all city inspections are frozen. Since 2014, in compliance with our permit, the city has been requiring new and redeveloped construction projects to include post-construction water quality control measures that are aimed at removing pollutant from runoff. These uh, BMPs include ponds, bioswells, and proprietary devices. This last year, 19 measures were installed, which resulted in 163 acres being treated. And we now have a total of 206 measures citywide, with a total of 1,557 acres being treated. I mentioned earlier that volunteers are responsible for picking up a lot of that litter, but we also contract with the public services to provide a litter crew. Working with code enforcement, we identify areas that need attention, and we utilize this crew to pick up 50, just over 50 tons of litter last year. Additionally, our relatively new in-house street sweeping program is completely under swing, um, and they have picked up 2,000, they've swept, rather, 2,600 miles of curb and removed 460 cubic yards of trash this year. So that can, that got ahead of myself again. Um, so that concludes our presentation. Does anyone else have any questions? All right, council, to my right, any questions? To my left? All right, good job. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Julie and Howard, thank you very much. I know you guys work really hard to keep keep the <clears throat> streets, parks, and waterways clean. And I know a lot of the folks in uh, the other divisions help with that. Uh, I want to make sure we also mention Julie Scheffler and the Mansfield Volunteer Program. There are a lot of members of our community, 10,000, roughly 10,000 uh, community volunteers that get out there every year at one point or another to 
help make that happen. So. I would like to put in one short plug for Julie Scheffler and her program, the fact that we have over 2,000 residents that come out and help out on her, you know, that's, those are only the programs that we take credit for that she runs. Um, there are far more volunteers that help out with all of their helping out other residents in the community. So again, kudos to everybody. That it always shocks part. me how many tires we can manage to pull out of a creek in one year. That is, yes, and it's it not does. like you leave a bunch of them for the next year, right? It's like every year they, Thank you all again. they grow. I didn't realize they grew. Uh, <coughs> Mayor, we also on the agenda have the departmental quarterly reviews. Sure. Uh, those we're available to answer any questions if you want, but that's been provided to you. If you have any, uh, please let us know. And then one other thing, and Troy sent me a text here, <clears throat> so I wanna give Troy an opportunity to talk for just a second, just to make sure everyone's crystal clear here. Talk about the legal, uh, wh what it would take to issue debt for a city hall, please. So at the uh, legislature in 2021, actually uh, changed the rules for municipalities. Um, I believe it was HB 1869 that year um, city halls, uh, cannot be issued without, uh, voter approval. Debt for city hall cannot be issued without voter approval. Uh, so council cannot issue debt or a CO, uh, cannot be issued for city hall to be, uh, a new city hall to be completed. So that would only be for voter approval. So that debt would be a GO. So that would have to go in front of the voters to be approved for, for this council to issue debt to build the new city hall. Thanks, Troy. All right. <coughs> Mayor, finishing that up, and I promise I'll be quiet, Are you all right? is, you know, we had the pleasure of meeting with this uh, leadership Mansfield group last week, and we talked a little bit about the power and the, the importance of being in, involved. <clears throat> and when you're involved, and I, I applaud every one of these folks, they want to be involved, but more importantly, they want to be informed and involved. So uh, part of why I'm answering this question here tonight is because I want to live what I said last week and say I want to make sure that we're just helping people be informed. You hear something like that at a council meeting, and Mr. Williams is a valuable member of the community. He's very involved in all that, so wasn't in disrespect in any way that I made any of those comments. Just want to make sure everyone's informed here. That's an economic development project. It's, is not a city hall. <clears throat> city hall would be taller than that. Five stories up. Anyway. All right. All right. Thank you for that. Go ahead, Mr. Lewis. You wanted to follow up on any? I was just going to clarify or ask: was was there a city hall on the ballot last May? No, sir. There was not. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I see Mr. Maynard in the back, and he raised up his head because I didn't I didn't see that we had that on the ballot either. But all right. So we're in good shape. All right, we'll move on to um, item 13. Is there any action to take pursuant to executive session? Hearing none, seeing none. Thank you very much. We don't have any. Happy day. All right, we'll move now to item 14. All matters to the consent agenda. All matters listed under the consent agenda have been previously discussed, and they require Little or no deliberation are considered to be routine by the council. If discussion is desired, then an item will be removed from the consent agenda and considered separately. Otherwise, approval of the consent agenda authorizes the city manager to implement each item in accordance with staff's recommendation. Council, are there any items that you would like to have removed at this time? 
All right, hearing none, saying none, I am prepared to receive a motion. Move to approve. Thank you, Mr. Lewis. Second. Thank you, Ms. Bowles. All right, hearing no questions, please cast your votes. All right, that item carries 6-0. Thank you very much. We move now to item 15, old business, item 23-5106, resolution, resolution of the city of Mansfield, Texas. Approving an economic development agreement between the city of Mansfield, the Mansfield Economic Development Corporation, and Crystal Window and Door Systems, authorizing the city manager and MEDC president to execute said agreement and providing an effective date, Mr. Moore. Mayor, Council, good evening. I do want to apologize that this is on your agenda again, and I'm going to ask you to do uh, one more thing, um, is to table this until we have a signed, executed agreement. Uh, the, the attorneys are really close to finalizing this, and, and the, the process in which we've tabled in the past is the reason why we keep putting it back on. Okay. And uh, that's my fault, and I'd, I'd like to ask that you consider tabling this with the condition that uh, we have an executed agreement before it comes back. We do expect that to happen by February 13th, but in the event we're finalizing things, we just ask that you do that. I'm happy to answer any questions on this specific project or the deal points if you need a refresher. If we're tabling it, we need not discuss it. Okay. All right, according to Robert's rules of order. <laughs> All right, so I'm ready to receive a motion. Mayor, I move that we table this indefinitely until it's brought back. Second. Right. Thank you. All right, Mr. Lewis. All right, questions, hearing them. All right, motion to table, passes six, zero. All right, we move now to item 22-5077, an ordinance of the city of Mansfield, Texas, amending chapter 116.03, a revocation of permit, providing that this uh, ordinance shall be cumulative of all ordinances providing a severability clause, providing a penalty for violation providing for the publication as required by law, and providing an effective date. Ms. Nicolette. Good evening, Council. This is a companion item to the next item, which will be an amendment to Chapter 155 regarding donation bins as well. The revisions to this ordinance are much shorter than what you're going to see on the next item, and they deal largely with the last section of the ordinance, which is the enforcement timeline, and that was the big clarification that we're trying to get and when do we need permits what is the permitting process going to look like and for who and i'm available to answer any questions all right to my left are there any questions to my right all right hearing none saying none i will call for a motion ma'am move to approve thank you miss short second thank you miss bounds questions Hearing none, please cast your vote. And that item carries 6-0. Thank you all very much. All right, we move now to item 16, which is our public hearing, item 22-5110, ordinance, public hearing, and first and final reading on an ordinance amending chapter 155, zoning of the Mansfield Code of Ordinances to revise the permit use uh, table in uh, section 155.05 
4B and the special conditions in section 155.099B40 related to donation boxes. Thank you, Honorable Mayor. Good evening, City Council. As Ms. Ricciuti said earlier, this is a companion item to the revisions that were just approved by City Council for Chapter 116. As currently proposed, a specific use permit as part of these amendments will be required for donation boxes in the OP, C1, C2, C3, and I1 districts. As the provisions for donation boxes currently stand, they are only allowed by right within the I2 districts. So this would expand their ability to be located in other commercial and industrial districts. They will also be allowed as an accessory use only for a church, a nonprofit organization, and a school with written consent within a 2F, MF1, MF2, OP, C1, C2, C3, I1, and I2 zoning districts. Some of the other amendments that are in front of you this evening include reducing the distance between two donation boxes from 500 feet to 250 feet, also doing the same for the distance between a donation box and a residential use or a hospital, daycare, or school, restricting their location within parking spaces, aisles, or loading docks and service areas. And then the two new provisions are as follows, that it would require donation boxes to have a neutral or earthen tone color and be designed in a way that prevents them from tipping over or permitting people to enter. In terms of enforcement, existing donation boxes must come into compliance with the donation box regulations as presented to City Council this evening, if approved, within 30 days. The operator of an existing donation box must apply for a specific use permit, if required, also within 30 days of these amendments, if approved by City Council. I do want to pause here before going into the recommendations from staff and the Planning and Zoning Commission. There are a couple of clarifications we would like to make to the provisions per a discussion with the city attorney, and I'll pause there. The Mayor and Council, if I could, uh, the recommended revision to the ordinance that's been uh, provided to you in the packet would be found in Section 3. Uh, in Section 3, it was proposed a new subsection 40. You'll find a subsection B3 or a paragraph B3 in that subsection. And it, the proposed revision is to revise subsection A there to read from the location of the existing donation box to the location of the proposed donation box. And then to revise subsection B so that it would read from the nearest portion of the right-of-way line of U.S. Highway 287, U.S. Business Highway 287, State Highway 360, Farm to Market Road 157, Farm to Market Road 1187, Farm to Market Road 917, Main Street, Debbie Lane, Broad Street, Country Club Drive, Heritage Parkway, Matlock Road, or Lone Star Road to the location of the donation box. Uh, those are the two proposed uh, revisions, just again as uh, Mr. Alexander suggested for clarification purposes. Thank you. The Planning and Zoning Commission did conduct a public hearing on this request from staff on January 3rd, 2023. They voted four to zero to recommend approval. Staff also recommends approval. And I'll pause there to answer any questions City Council may have. On my left, questions on my right. Go ahead, Ms. Bounds. Just a couple of questions. Um, so for the donation box, um, 
it'll be in the ordinance that they must be a certain color, uh, earth tone colors. How will this affect any of the current organizations that have a designated color and logos already, like maybe like Goodwill or like a Salvation Army? How will that affect them? So they would be, if they are legally conforming under the previous provisions, they would be allowed to remain. And that is granted that they comply with existing zoning if city council does approve these amendments tonight. If they are not, then they would have to come into compliance with these provisions if approved by city council as presented. And then last, uh, from last time I had a question. Um, you've gone to the extent on talking about how tall, no one can be able to get in it and all of that. Have you also included into it the type of materials that it shall be made of so that you know it's fire retardant, it won't weather away in this Texas god-awful heat that we have. Do you have those provisions as well? No, ma'am, we do not. But we can certainly revisit those provisions and bring those back to city council if that is a desire. Yes. All right, anybody else? All right, thank you very much. Then I will uh, open the public hearing at uh, 7.50. Ms. Mary, do we have any cards? All right. I will close the public hearing at 7.50. And I will call for a motion. Mayor. Yes, sir. I'd like to make a motion that we approve adding in the changes that were read by the city attorney. All right. Mayor, second. 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 All right, Ms. Short. Thank you. Questions? Hearing none. Please cast your vote. And the carry 6-0. Thank you all very much. Move now to item 23-5142, public hearing, first and final reading on an ordinance amending a section 155.069K1B of the Mansfield Code of Ordinance to adopt design guidelines for commercial and non-residential historic landmarks and to make the guidelines applicable to all areas of the City of Mansfield. Mr. Wright. Uh, good evening, Mayor, City Council. Um, this item is an update of our current design guidelines for historic landmarks, uh, particularly for the commercial and non-residential buildings. Right now, our current design guidelines apply to the uh, non uh, the commercial buildings that are on Block 1 and Block 2 of the original town. That's the... Uh, historic Victorians on uh, Main Street. Uh, our current guidelines were written in 1991 and they were designed pri primarily for those Victorian buildings. The text of the old book, I don't know if you, anyone's ever seen it, is very text heavy and it doesn't have a lot of useful graphics um, and it does not provide for modern preservation practices because again, it was written 30 years ago. So what we would like to do is update them in the uh, historic Mansfield uh, design guidelines to apply to uh, all of the commercial non-residential landmarks because we have 18 of them currently, but two of them are not on block one or block two. That would be the high school and the old rock gym. Uh, we'd like to write the guidelines for all eras because now the uh, mid-centuries have become historic. Uh, Roy's Hair Shop, Dr. Uh, Cook's office down on South Main Street. All of those are actually now important buildings to our history. 
Our text is simplified in the new version to make it a little easier to read and understand, and we've got a lot of pictures and graphics to go with them to give you guides that you can actually see. This is what your door should look like, this is what your window should look like, this is how you fix brick. It provides for modern preservation practices because a lot of stuff has changed in the last 30 years and where we would require something very draconian back in 1991, we don't want to do that anymore. We want flexibility, we want to allow practices that will work. Uh, you can see an example of it at the Man House when they did the restoration. They did a lot of stuff that you wouldn't have done in 1991. And then we want to encourage other things, not just the building, but the site. Because when you landmark something, the property it's on generally gets landmarked as well. So we want to include site elements, uh, such as outdoor amenities, benches, uh, public art, uh, site lighting, that kind of thing that wasn't considered in the previous guideline. So this is an example of what the new guidelines look like. You would have a rule that uh, describes what you're trying to do and then you'd have the graphics that explain how to go about doing it. These um, should be kept in mind that these are guidelines and not standards, which means they are not regulatory. And that allows our Historic Landmark Commission to have some flexibility to work with a landmark owner to uh, complete a restoration project. Uh, in fact, you can see the uh, BCB transport building on Main Street moving happily along and they had to do some tweaking due to the condition of the building that the old guidelines wouldn't really have approved of. So again, we're updating these older ones. Uh, they'll apply only to commercial or non-residential landmarks. So those folks would have to follow it for any exterior changes. What they do to the inside is entirely up to them. Then they are not regulations. They are uh, just to help follow the proper preservation practices. Now the other thing is, if someone wants to, that isn't a landmark, they are welcome to use these guidelines to inform their project. So for example, if Mr. Patterson um, next to the theater wanted to restore the front of his building, he could use these even if he's not a landmark. He just would not be required to. So the Planning and Zoning Commission looked at this. They voted four to zero to recommend approval. The Landmark Commission has been working on this for a year, so of course they voted approval and staff recommends approval. And I'm available for any questions. All right, I'll start on my right. Are there any questions for Mr. Wright? My left? Yes, go ahead, Ms. Short. Uh, thank you, Art. Uh, just looking through here, and you know, I heard you when you said that this is for historic landmark mm -hmm. properties. That it does talk about new construction in several different places using these guidelines as well, so you are you believe that it's clear to anyone that's wanting to do something like in the historic downtown area that, that these are not requirements for new builds or sites that aren't historic. These are just suggestions. Absolutely. This would be, for example, um, the, the new construction provisions. If Sardi's, for example, was torn down at the end of Main Street and the owner wanted to design a building that was compatible with downtown, they could use these but they would not be required to. The Landmark Commission has no authority over any building except the 18 landmarks. So what we would do is, is use these. And you'll find some of these actually in the D downtown zoning district uh, as part of the regulatory requirements, like having a storefront. So uh, there'll be other means to do it. It's just, again, to be informational in how you do it. 
Uh, that particular provision is in the existing guidelines, but it was so badly written that they could put a glass building in place of the historic building, which would be completely out of character with downtown. So no, we don't intend to stop anyone's project and say you have to follow these rules if they're not required to. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, Mr. North. Just so, Art, just to clear, a uh, little clarification. So let's say in the future we want to uh, create a Founders Row, kind of like Middle Ocean. Would we have the ability to move some of these landmarks? Yes, in fact, um, we've been considering trying to design one to save those. What we would do is most of the buildings that would be threatened are not landmarks yet. So we would get them to their new home and then landmark them there. Any other questions? All right. Hearing none, seeing none. I will open the public hearing at uh, 7.58 p.m. Ms. Mayor, do we have any cards? All right. I will close the public hearing at 7.58 p.m. And I will call for a motion. Move to approve. Thank you, Ms. Short. Second. Thank you, Ms. Bounds. Questions, hearing none, please cast your vote. All right, motion passes, 6-0. All right, item 22-5044. Continued the public hearing and consideration of a request for a specific use permit for apartments in the Reserve PD Workplace Subdistrict on approximate 10.034 acres being a tract of land in the Elizabeth um, McInair survey, abstract number 1005, city of Mansfield in Tarrant County, Texas, located at 240 North Mitchell, generally located to the southwest of the East Broad Street and Reserve Way intersection, uh, SUP number 22-004, Mr. Alexander. Thank you, Mayor. Again, this is a public hearing and continuation of a request for a specific use permit for apartments within the reserve PD, and in particular, the workplace subdistrict. Again, the current zoning of the property is PD, planned development within a reserve. You see it highlighted in yellow. These are just some photos showing the site. And the context of the project Again, this use does require a specific use permit within the workplace subdistrict. Pursuant to additional use restrictions within the same, buildings containing apartments and no other primary use must contain a minimum of three stories. This particular project does not contain ground floor commercial activity. So thus, as part of the consideration, it must have a minimum of three stories. It also contemplates a construction of 333 apartments. And the developer as well as staff was provided with direction and guidance that primarily focus on enhancing pedestrian connections and implementing contemporary placemaking principles. Still remaining on project considerations, the developer did provide for many of the ground floor units fronting Domain Drive, Navi Road, Reserve Way, and a future street. 
private entries that create the appearance of walk-up units and that will help foster increased opportunities for social interaction. There is a note that was also included on the site plan that the walk-up entries must enter to a living or kitchen space and not enter to a bedroom. The building elevations do reflect some differences in color and exterior finished material to help visually distinguish it from adjacent projects. A good example of that would be the Atwell. And there is enhanced seating provided, as well as some landscaping improvements made along an internal street between Domain Drive and Navi Road. And this is the revised site plan, again showing that there are three buildings containing 333 multifamily units as proposed. These are the proposed elevations that first came before City Council on November 14th, 2022. And these are the modifications that have been made pursuant to those additional conversations and discussions about the project. And as you can see here with building number one, there is an increase in height along some of the facades from three to four stories. As it pertains to buildings number two and three, you can see differences in color and some recesses and projections to help add visual interest along the infronting streets. This is sort of the landscaping plan that contains the plant schedule for the development. You do see here that there is an increase in the amount of landscaping to help with creating a more attractive project. Here are some renderings and illustrations that show some of the landscaping features along one of the streets and you can see here in the images the terrace levels and then still staying on landscaping plans this is the internal streetscape again between navi and domain the planning and zoning commission voted six to zero to recommend approval with the allowance of parking between buildings number one and number two along Domain Drive, with the enhanced seating and streetscape details as shown in the site plan from November 7th, 2022. The City Council tabled its decision on this application on November 14th, 2022. And I'll pause there to answer any questions City Council may have. The applicant does have a presentation that follows as well. All right. Thank you, Mr. Lewis. Uh, thank you, Mayor. Mr. Alexander, could you go to your slide on the internal streetscape? Can you do that? So the images on the right that show parallel parking, wide sidewalk, good landscaping buffer between the buildings. Um, the When you zoom in, it's supposed to be the internal streetscape. When you look at the image on the left that is the rendering of what that, do those align to you? It, it appears that the grass section is about as wide as the sidewalk section, so it's maybe a total of six feet, eight feet, versus the one on the right. I mean, there's clearly 10, 12 feet of landscaping. Yeah. So the scaling might be slightly off, just trying to show where that is within the site plan, and then 
providing the renderings and some of the photographs of that streetscape. I, I guess the, the photos look like this is the intended, this is what we want it to look like, but then you look at the site plan and it, it doesn't allow it to look like what the photos look like because the scale is, yes, somewhat. I think, pretty drastically different. Yes. But for the most part, that generally aligns, I think, with the exception of how the parking is angled. If that answers your question. Uh, I mean, kind of when I zoom in, the grass section on the image on the left is the same width as the sidewalk. No. Is that the grass the, image the, you're the, talking the building about? building frontage. That long, along the parking spaces, that whole section. The grass section and the sidewalk are roughly the same width there. I don't have measurements on the image okay. I'm looking at. But... If I looked at the pictures, I see you see you know, a deeper a setback, foot sidewalk, and a deeper set landscaping setback. So okay. when this is the landscape plan for the internal streetscape, how can staff enforce to the imagery that we see when the site plan and landscape plan on the left do not match the images that we see on the right? I follow you now. So if that is a consideration from City Council of creating a deeper setback. That could be a condition as part of the review and approval of creating that deeper setback that would allow for staff to enforce it so that you do get more of that buffer yard that you are describing and more of that attractive streetscape that you see in the images provided. I got it. Yeah, I, I think my challenge on, on this is I want the images to match what the plan is. If we see images mm -hmm. and then I go look at it built, I want what's built to be what the images showed, not... And in this case, there's a conflict between those two. Where, so I, I guess that's where I have that struggle multiple times throughout everything. Is uh, The imagery looks great. That's yes, what sir. we're, we see the imagery. We want to we vote to approve the imagery. And then we get to site plans, landscape plans. They don't match what the imagery, the respective imagery says. With that deeper setback, for example, along the sidewalk. I mean, if the deeper setback is what they're trying to market here as the internal streetscape. I would think that the internal streetscape would, on the site plan, look like the imagery they used. Yes, sir. So, thank you. On my right. All right. I understand that the applicant is here. Yes, sir. And they do have a presentation. All right. The applicant may come. Thank you, Mayor and Council. Uh, my name is Clay Roby, um, managing partner at Stillwater Capital, uh, member of the applicant along with my partner, Cole, um, who will be doing most of the presentation tonight. I guess I wanted to start uh, with a couple of summary comments about our company and this overall project, and then I'll transition quickly so that we don't waste anybody's time um, getting into the nuance of this particular project. The first thing I want to highlight is you can see here on the rendering um, that was done for the front of the building, um, Councilman uh, Lewis, to your question, uh, the oversized landscape areas that were shown on that graphic, and I don't know exactly from the submission to the packages that were assembled and whatnot, there are large oversized green spaces and stoop units on the perimeter of the entirety of the project at this point. Um, what I would call the exterior perimeter maybe is a, the safest way to discuss that. And so there is sufficient room um, along the main driveways, uh, again, around the perimeter of the platted site 
uh, the proposed platted site to accommodate those looks. So you have the walk-up soup units, you have the stairs, you have landscaping green space, you have private yards for each unit that is on the ground floor, plenty of room for trees, plenty of room for the tree balls to take uh, so that they grow into large mature trees and don't get restricted. So there is sufficient space on, on those areas for that condition. It is a little bit tighter on that internal drive, that's an accurate statement. Um, a little bit of that is just the configuration of that internal courtyard and how quickly we can turn it in so it is accurate. Um, your question, uh, if you saw, if you go back in your packet, I'm not sure if I can do it from here, there is a, uh, an image on the right side of those three that does show a narrower uh, condition between the building face and the back of curb uh, where the sidewalk is. Um, and that is a pretty realistic um, configuration. There's enough room for trees, private yards, and landscape yards in that configuration, just slightly smaller than what's on the true exterior perimeter of the property. So just a, a comment on that specifically, and we can get into some of that with our site plans. Um, kind of moving along to the presentation here again, you guys are familiar at this point with Stillwater and our company, so I'm not gonna belabor this. Uh, we are a large uh, regional real estate development company. We have over 100 employees now um, and have a full suite of developments that we manage, uh, residential, commercial, hospitality, mixed use, things of that nature. These are the markets where we operate. Um, I'm not gonna go into a whole lot of detail about PGA Frisco. I've talked about it at this podium numerous times in the past. I do wanna talk briefly about our adjacent mixed use project which sits next to PGA Frisco. Um, uh, PGA Frisco project is a $500 million resort, hotel and golf course. It's the headquarters of the PGA of America. Uh, phenomenal deal that we're extraordinarily proud of. This development across the street is a mixed use commercial development with characteristics that do have a lot in common while it is a, a, a different development with what we're doing and proposing here in Mansfield. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because this, is a, this was a long and extensive process to get this property zoned, to work through the site plans. Uh, we break ground on our infrastructure in about 90 days on this site and have uh, north of $300 million in development that is currently in design and working through site plan approvals. The reason why I mention that is these projects are hard, they are difficult, and they are complicated. Um, we've been working on this site plan um, with council and with staff. I was looking at my notes on the way in here. Our first submission was in March of last year, and you guys have been committed to working through the details here to make sure we get it right. And I truly hope that you feel like we've been good collaborative partners in that discussion. I realize that sometimes we could all improve on communication. Uh, we could work a little bit through some of the nuances a bit more quickly. Uh, but at the end of the day, I do appreciate your commitment to seeing this thing through. Um, and working with us to ensure that we meet not only the requirements of the reserve PD, but go above and beyond wherever we can to ensure this is a first class development for the city um, and for the neighborhoods in Mansfield. Uh, briefly, another project which is similar in nature, again, just to mention some other things that we're working in town for those in the audience, certainly that have not seen any of our presentations before. Um, this is a project at Spring Creek in the Tollway, one exit south of Legacy West in Plano, Texas. Similar story here. This is a $400 million plus development it was um, over a year and a half of zoning, a very extensive uh, planning process in coordination with the city of Plano. They approved earlier this month a $40 million initial PID infrastructure program, which we will be ultimately funding and responsible for, uh, to lay out the infrastructure to support this development. And our first phase in this project um, is north of $200 million. And so again, I, I'm just referencing this to talk about um, the amount of time it takes to do these. Stillwater's commitment to ensure we do it the right way and hopefully uh, working collaboratively with all of you to make sure that um, they are done just exactly that way. I'm gonna turn over now, this is a little bit skewed on this uh, deal, it's a little bit out of 
alignment, but um, my partner Cole here will be talking about the development um, in detail. You've already seen the site that's been presented from the staff report, and he will get into the details of um, what's been happening across the street and what we're proposing here. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, thanks again. My, my name is Cole Henley with uh, Stillwater. Um, you know, this is just a slide just referencing the, the development that uh, the Atwell is in the bottom corner where uh, that's already uh, open for business at this point, and then we're under construction for the Brentwood townhomes across the street on the northern side of um, Broad Street. And so this is the uh, this is the, the configuration that was brought before you on November 14th. Uh, you know, again, we had staff recommendation of approval along with P&Z recommendation of approval. It was tabled. There was a few considerations that were brought to us by you guys, and uh, we've done our best to, well, we've considered every single one of them and done our best to the ability to, uh, to be able to address every single one of the comments that were made. Uh, this is the updated site plan, and while it's not apparent here, uh, the, the considerations that we were asked to take a look at mostly revolved around landscaping, architecture, and the pedestrian experience. And so what we were able to do is we pushed the buildings, the, the two and three that were on the left side of the page, over as far to the west as we could. And that was able to free up a little bit of extra space on the uh, internal drive. And uh, what that allowed us to do was to be able to fit decorative trees and uh, treat that as more of a secondary urban street. And so kind of going through specifically what we were addressed, so um, you know, to address the, the walk-up units, um, each of the exterior units are, are walk-up units at this point. We've been able to program private yards with you know, true front doors, and as Mr. Alexander mentioned, that um, there's a note on the, uh, the sheet addressing some concerns that, uh, you know, whether or not there was going to be a true front door experience or if it was going to go into a bedroom. Uh, it is required to go into a living area or the kitchen area, and uh, the, going into a bedroom is prohibited, so the idea is that it is a true front door with the same access um, fob that will be used in, from the interior. Uh, additionally, there was some concern about the how the sidewalk is handled along the western edge of the facade. Um, We've committed to building all or at least a portion of that road, which would include the sidewalk that's on the east side. And so there would be a true sidewalk around uh, the entire property. So there is the, that enhanced uh, pedestrian experience. So next, we were uh, asked to consider the internal uh, streetscape. And as I mentioned, the, uh, the north-south road was uh, widened so we could fit additional uh, landscaping. So there is a... There's a sidewalk, there's a row of landscaping, and there's private yards that are all able to fit comfortably within this section. We view it as a true you know, secondary urban street. It is connected to a parking lot. Um, and however, we've also uh, added several pedestrian connections into the building from the internal areas, and we've provided crosswalks so that there's uh, enhanced connectivity throughout the development. So if, if you're able to enter and exit the building, um, all roads kind of take you through. There's real connectivity among the amenities in, in the building. And, um, so it's kind of displayed here. The red is, is uh, the, the sidewalks and crosswalks that will be displayed throughout the city, uh, throughout the development. And um, I suppose one thing I did neglect to mention is that we were able to uh, take a look at the, the parking requirements that we had. We removed 33 parking spaces that are internal to the project. So we are still, you know, able to meet city requirements, but we did remove quite a bit of parking so we could add additional landscaping islands and sidewalks uh, and the connectivity that goes throughout the, the development. And so uh, one other thing we were asked to consider, we originally had an enhanced seating area that was planned further east along the project. Uh, we had originally planned that as it would be more visible to uh, vehicles that were entering along the reserve way. However, we asked to consider um, tucking it back and treating it more as a residential amenity that could be shared between the Atwell and this new development. And so we came up with um, 
uh, the idea that you've kind of seen on the screen. And so just to kind of give a little bit of context, the grade changes that are on the northern boundary are going to require a three to four foot retaining wall as a typical section along the, um, the majority of the northern boundary. And so we looked at several iterations. We considered, you know, do we want to take a retaining wall and just kind of tuck down a landing area that had some sort of amenity and seating area on, on the base level? Uh, we looked at a tiered uh, retaining wall system, but what we came up with was kind of a hybrid between the two, where we've got the retaining wall along either side and it kind of narrows down and it's treated as like this enhanced st uh, stair steps that would be providing additional seating as well as, you know, tiered vegetation system. And uh, we have two areas that are cut out that we provided shade trees with seating areas. And so what we liked about it is that this is kind of marries up the grades between the Atwell and the, uh, in this new development. So where there's, um, you know, whether it's connected through stairs or, uh, well, the fact that it's connected through stairs is that um, we considered it kind of the best of both worlds. And so it's a true amenity that would be offered among the two developments. Um, you know, throughout the master plan, as you guys have seen several times, there's a lot of different uh, open space and amenities plans. So the role that this one would play would be more of kind of your passive quiet gathering area, if you want to read a book on a nice day, if you wanted to play board games or, you know, watch the, you know, watch your laptop underneath the, the shade, this would provide that opportunity. Both the Atwell and this project are going to have several, they'll be very rich with active amenities, including fitness, pools, dog parks, and, and the such. And so we, we felt like this was a, this was a good connective tissue between the two residential projects that are sitting in the northwest of our master plan. And then finally, we take a look at the architecture. This one, we've got, we went through a lot of iterations in order to come up with what we see here. Um, building one, the primary material was red brick. We, that would be accented by the darker brick. It really provided some, kind of that staple feature along the corner with the, um, uh, with, with the skylines that would be available for residents. Um, buildings two and three, we considered a lot of different, different directions with this one. You know, we had a white concept. We had a couple of concepts that were just completely different architecturally. We looked at concepts that, um, with, with different color schemes, and what we came back to was the lighter colored brick, but having that connective tissue with the red brick between the two projects. Uh, this is something that, you know, again, we, we did take several iterations, and, um, you know, we, we bounced it off of our partners, we bounced it off of other developers, and then the management companies, and it all kind of kept coming back to this concept being really the right one to do for this project. And so, um, you know, we, we took this very seriously, and this is what we believe is the best for the situation that we have, um, best for this development, best for the city, and best for the, the master plan. And so, with that being said, um, I'll over here if we can answer any questions that you guys may have. Mr. Lewis, um, you guys, in regard to our housing market growth strategy subcommittee, you all have been conversing, you all have been working with um, the gentleman, uh, I'm just curious as to whether the, you know, the concerns that, that we have articulated in, in the given meetings um, and uh, aesthetics, of course, continues to be something that we've been talking about. Uh, you, you mind giving some clarity on whether we have, we have reached some of those um, goals that have been laid out in front of us? I wouldn't say I, the architectural renderings. I think you guys did a great job taking the instruction of don't make all these buildings look the exact same all at one time. But I just now seeing that uh, presentation, it didn't show real well in the packet that I had. So I, I think those look great. Um, 
I've got a couple things I want to go through, um, but I actually just forwarded pictures. If we could put those up, I want you to talk through to me. You, you familiar with this? Okay, can you pull up another one? That one up. So that's the internal streetscape of your phase one project that is directly, when I come out of the development phase two that's being proposed here, this is what I'm looking at as I go through. Can you walk me through what is different in phase two versus this? Uh, yeah, I'll make a couple of comments and then I think um, you know, maybe at the at the end or at the beginning. Um, well, let me just let me just put it at the, at the front end because it's good to orient how we can talk about these things. The reason why this project is built the way it is is because it conforms to the PD standards that are in place. I think the process that we've been going through is to understand what modifications need to be made above and beyond the ordinance as written to accommodate additional concerns in a collaborative way. And so, you know, we could get into, uh, and I will address a, a few things that we are doing on the other project that we did not do here, um, or were not asked to do, or, or never came up, or weren't a standard on this particular project. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the high level approach to the site does have a lot of similarities, like that is a reality. Um, you've selectively shown three of the interior drive photos, which are interior drives private to the residents as a part of the kind of, you know, live-in experience. Um, these are not public right-of-way streets, right? These are sure. internal to the development, which I think is a fair distinction to make in terms of what, what we're looking at here. So specifically, um, I don't know the, the setback specifically of the um, space between the buildings and the sidewalks in this particular um, setting here. I'd have to go measure it or look at our plans and get back to you. I do know that after the most recent meeting, as Cole was mentioning, we did shift the buildings over several feet, um, basically all the way up to the to this kind of you know, call it the minimum requirement or whatever for the green space allotment on the west side because the comment was made that they also wanted, you know, the design review committee also wanted the landscape buffer on the west side of buildings two and three on the kind of facing the Baptist Church property there. And so we scooted over to make a larger condition uh, that would allow for private yards, green space, and trees in the space between the building face and the sidewalks in this initial condition. Um, so on this particular photo here on the left-hand side, we do not have that condition. Um, you have a sidewalk that is just within a couple of feet of the building face. If you were to go back a couple of photos, I believe you did have one um, that showed um, slightly larger landscaping areas um, that, I, again, I don't know if the exact you know, number of feet is the same, but the condition is probably a little bit closer to what we're proposing on the drive on the, the proposed project. Just for reference, um, those are all images of the same general area. Exactly right. Yeah, you're looking down yeah, the, the center drive on both. And so what I was going to point out here is this kind of notch in the front of the, of the space. And so, um, you know, I, again, I don't know exactly how many feet I'm looking at, but in the in the rear of the photo here, you do not have sufficient space for um, occupiable private yards um, and green space and trees, whereas in the foreground you do in the front section here before you get to the units. 
And so I, I think that the conditions that we're proposing in that center space will accommodate the green planting area, the private yard, and trees. Um, you know, I guess my last comment on this, and then you can tell me if I'm addressing your question or not. We've a little bit been shooting in the dark in terms of what is the right size here, because it isn't a standard in the ordinance today. Um, if we would just have been told, or if we can be told, you know, we need to hit this number of feet, that's a design spec that we can work towards. What we've been trying to do is accommodate those three things. Private occupiable yards with the walk-up units and the perimeter, um, green space for plantings, and uh, space for um, shade trees. So those are the three things that we've instructed our landscaper to be able to accommodate, and all three of those things can be accommodated in the plans that we submitted. Okay. I know we've had a lot of talk about the internal street that goes through, because I think I used the phrase urban mullet, right? Mm -hmm. It looks urban on the outside, but in the interior it just looks like another suburban multifamily complex. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what phase one, I believe, that's your exterior does. It, it's fantastic. I've got other images I can forward that show what I wanted to focus specifically on these, that the exterior yeah. is great. Um, if I may, real quick, one other thing that we didn't get into on these photos that you provided, um, there are no, um, or there are no, there are significantly fewer landscape um, parks spaces in the phase one project from the proposal that's in front of you today. If you go to our presentation, you can see, as Cole mentioned, we removed 33 parking spaces from our plan. Those parking spaces have been eliminated. We are st still able to squeeze in with our parking requirements per city code. Um, but each one of those parking spaces has been converted into a green space. Um, some of them are single spaces, enough for a tree and some green space. Some of them are connected, so there's multiple of them together. Um, some of them actually, to a comment that you made at our review session, I believe, or maybe it was at the previous council meeting, where we've actually eliminated a number of garage access spaces and created green spaces around the perimeter where the tuck on the garages are. So that's a significant difference from this project to that project. Okay. I'm going to try to find that comment you just made because I, I overlooked that. Um, Kara, would you mind pulling up their presentation? I want to talk about the retaining wall on the north end because that was, I, I don't know for everybody else, that was a big one for me. I, I frankly didn't want it. You guys are insistent that you have to have one, asked to push the buildings up, but it is what it is. This is how you presented it. So, um, can you go to where your retaining wall cutout is? That image. Um, what is, if I'm in the parking lot looking at that, mm -hmm. do you have a fence up? What is kind of separating that? That's just, oh, sorry. Is it just landscaping? It's just landscaping. It's kind of a living screen. You know, we there's not a final design yet, so there's likely going to be an opening if there's going to be, uh, you know, you utilize those stairs so you can access the street. But um, that's, uh, Generally, what it is, it's going to be hedges and, and uh, landscaping. If I stand on Domain Drive today, that's seven to eight feet above. So we're going to have vehicles that park seven to eight feet above the public right-of-way side, public sidewalk. Uh, no, sir. The preliminary grading we have is going to be reduced. That wall is going to be a three to four foot section, typically. So the current, I think, let me clarify, the current grading is roughly seven to eight feet. When you walk up to the site and you look at it, it's roughly seven to eight, eight feet. When we do our mass grading and we level the site, that part of the site actually gets reduced down and it gets sloped from the building elevation down towards the street and we take that dirt and we export it. So at the final condition, the average height of that 
you know, call it that retaining wall. It doesn't exist around the entire streetscape there, but in sections it does. The average height is between three and four feet. So at final condition, it'll be roughly half of what's there today. And our grading plans that we submitted show that. Are you going to export that dirt or are you going to push it back to a future phase where we have another retaining wall? Um, I'd have to look at our cut fill. We do not have any. Um, there is no export. There, no. Yeah, I, I don't think, I think it's just grading. I think we're just moving it from, I guess that would be the north side of the site down to the south side of the site to level the site. Because it, it does slope a little bit today. And to, to clarify that a little bit, we don't have our final grading plans yet, but the idea is that the site would balance on its own. And so there would, there would be no, um, you know, dirt pile stock up in future phases or anything of that nature. And that, was, that wasn't what happened here. This, in order to make the buildings work in the first phase, we had to cut down. And so that's where the, uh, the difference in the grading came. Right, so look, two months ago we said we prefer to push, as long as net, push the buildings up to the street. You guys said we can't because we've got a retaining wall there. Now you're telling me we can go through final grading. We gotta, we're, we're gonna move five feet of the dirt, because, I mean, it's, no, it's eight no, feet no. now, so we're gonna move five feet away to go down to three feet. And because we, Why couldn't we just cut it all the way down so we have no retaining wall and can push the buildings up to the streetscape like we all wanted originally? Yes, sir, because the, the, the side has to tie it on four sides, and so if we were to push the building up to the north side, it would have stood in a lot taller retaining wall than what we were able to do here. We were able to make up for the grading because there was that parking that was pushed in front of the, uh, in front of the building. The road, Wait, can you explain the, that the, again? Yeah, the building. Yeah, so, the slope. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, so there's a slope that we can accommodate for a parking space between the building face and the perimeter of this wall. So what we're doing right now is, and I don't know the exact elevation, but the building here, okay, at the, at the building face where yeah. our foundation is, is roughly four feet higher than the perimeter over here. So we are able to leverage the parking lot at a slope, and I don't know exactly what the slopes are, but it's roughly four feet. So it basically drops down on that slope. When you move the building up to this edge, you don't have the ability to make that drop, right? Because you don't have any space. And so the elevation of this um, kind of uh, unit row right here is the same in either configuration. But in this approach with the site plan as drafted, we can use this, the additional space between that face and the road to pull the site down. Does that make sense? Uh, it, it makes sense. It's just one of those, like, if you've got to grade it, you're going to be moving dirt. Either way, we didn't, none of us up here wanted a retaining wall there because you've got an urban edge that you've started to create, and you told us that you couldn't do that As because of the grading. Stepping, yeah. We, 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 and now, like, you, it's, you can always move dirt. You're just going to push this back. I, my concern now is, we get to the further southern edge, you guys come in for the next phase and we got another retaining wall. You no, we're just starting no, to break that, everything up. The, the highest, so we've done a, a, a topo survey of the entirety property of our master plan, which is almost 200 acres. The high point in the site is somewhere kind of in this area here, kind of two thirds of the way down this site plan and it, it flows down on either side from there. And so we're, we're kind of going from the low area at broad up to this building and then it starts dropping down again. And so that topography is what it is. I mean, that's why retaining walls exist all over the place because the world looks flat, but when you actually look at it over the course of a site, you know, a couple of feet adds up pretty quickly and creates these retaining wall conditions. So the site plan that we've created here allows us to have no retaining walls on 
uh, the, I believe there's none, right? On the three other sides? On the three other sides, there's none or almost none? I believe that's correct. I mean, so there's either zero or almost no zero, or almost no um, retaining walls on any other perimeter of the building. We do have a step up in the site from where the road exists here on Domain Drive to this building. And we have to get somehow roughly seven feet from that Domain Drive up to the, the building. That's, that's where it is to, to have a flat building. Because you pushed the dirt from phase one to this site. No, we right? did not push the building from phase one to the site. Okay. No, the, 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 the Atwell site was graded to be flat. The dirt that's here was, has been here since you know, the and, beginning of time. And the Atwell did require a retaining wall in kind of the northwest corner in order to make this grade work as well. Yeah, I want to be clear on that. This dirt that is here has been here, right? Okay. What you see when you go up to the side and you see the rough cut dirt that's there, that's because we had to grade down to create a street drainage that would be acceptable to the to the engineering staff to ensure that our roads drained and our site balanced and all that kind of stuff. The dirt that's here was not pushed over from phase one. Okay. Thank you guys for answering the question. Are there any others? Mr. Bross, Ms. Bounds, that is it. Go ahead, Mr. Bross. I'm going to ask you if we could. Uh, Get a, a vote to recess for a moment uh, to get advice from the attorney. All right. You can call. You sure can call for one. I'll second. All right. Motion second. Question. Hearing none, we'll vote to re take a recess. And the motion carries 6 0. And we'll recess at 8 34 p.m.
reconvene at 9.15 out of recess. Uh, guys, for the good order of the day, we're going to do the following. I'm going to uh, go ahead and uh, I'm going to open the uh, public hearing, and then after which we'll, we'll begin our discussion after I close it. So I'll open the public hearing at uh, 9.15. Uh, PM. Do we have any cards? No, we do not. All right. I'm going I'm to close it at 9:15, and at this time, I will call for a motion. Mayor, I'd like to make a motion to approve with several conditions. All right. All right. In order for the uh, orderly development of the reserve and adjacent properties, uh, make a motion to approve uh, with no more than one retaining wall and it cannot be in excess of three feet on the entire property as facing public right-of-way. Uh, the, the future right-of-way that the developer will construct and pay for it prior to receiving their CO. The internal streetscape along the western edge of Building 1 should mirror the setback sidewalk and landscaping requirements similar to the site plan showing Navi Way. Um, no perimeter fencing or vehicular access gates to so that it provides for the orderly flow of pedestrian and vehicular traffic through the development. Uh, the pedestrian connection from the enhanced civic space along Domain Drive to the pedestrian sidewalk internal to the development and that the enhanced civic space must include terraced seating. Second. All right, second by Ms. Short. Questions? Hearing none, please cast your vote. All right, that motion carries six zero. Item 17. Motion to adjourn. Second. All right, motion and second. Cast your vote. We will adjourn at 9.17 p.m. Good work. Thank you all very much. And we will see each other around town. See you Thursday night.